Hello and welcome back to the Miscast, where we examine the latest news, spicy brews, and strategy in CDH. I am your host, Drake Sasser, and with me today is professional tournament organizer, Mikey Hollohan. How are you doing today, Mikey? Doing swell. Super excited. I have tomorrow off, so we got a nice long weekend, and now we get to talk some magic, so it's a great way to kick off the, the weekend. You have Friday off? That's so lucky. Yeah, we got a mental health day for my CEO. Oh, we actually have some of those coming up. They're they're kind of sick. They're like just like half days, and they, you like vote on when they're going to be for us. We don't get full days. We're not that bougie, but uh, it is cool to see like more uh, time off being given, and specifically in the name of mental health, because I feel like um, in a variety of fields there uh, should be a lot more of those. There should be a lot more mental health days for sure. Yeah, definitely. That's sick. That's sick. Well. Uh, we're recording this a little later than we normally do. We just kind of had a lot come up. I am actively sick, so if I sound different or whatever, my brain is mush today and the content sucks, well, I'm sorry. You can complain at me on Twitter or, or whatever medium you choose to complain at me at, but uh, I am feeling a little down. I have influenza, so i uh, going to be doing my best to make some good content, but we had to push this off to Thursday. But either way, I still want to talk. How was your weekend? Uh, overall, it was good. Uh, so obviously I TO'd the event over at Playing With Power, and that was the largest event that I've TO'd for so far. It started off with 120 people, obviously there were some no-shows, and some people dropped along the way, but at the start of the day we had 120 people, and that was just really cool, and it was also really good practice, since I'm going to be TOing the event in March for Marchesa, and that's going to be in Seattle. 120 people, that's so many. Is that like literally exactly 30 pods just starting round one? Uh... That's how the math checks out, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's insane. Like, that's so many pods to be firing at the same time. I mean, playing with power, they you know they just have an awesome system set up, and that's so so cool that you know you can support that many people in an online platform. Yeah, that's uh, that's awesome. I'm excited to to dive deeper into that as we get into the show, and that is going to be the main focus of our show today. I think there's a lot to talk about. There's a lot of cool concepts that uh, took place in the Playing With Power tournament that are worth diving into a little bit more and actually discussing. And uh, I've been chomping at the bit to talk with you about it. And we even have a little bit where I don't, I don't know what succeeded in the tournament. I was busy all weekend and uh, Mike, Mikey does. So he's going to have me guess what happened in the top four. I have a list of the top 16 of 120 decks. I have a list of the top 16 uh, decks and I'm going to try to guess the top four. Uh, but I do know the winner. I do know uh, it's Gustav, right? The, the, yeah, resident the goose honker. himself, yeah, the <laughs> resident honker, rose up from the ranks and ascended over his enemies. That's so, he's so powerful. What a master, truly. Yeah. From drawing all lands from from his rustic studies to winning a tournament, what a glow up! <laughs> yeah, you know, who saw it coming? He, he looks at his hands like none of these have text, and then he nozzes you out of nowhere. Yeah, like, then you're dead. Yeah, yeah, you're right, Gustav. They have no text on them. You got it. You got us. Uh, all right. Well, before we dive in, do a little bit. Are you working on anything in the CDH sphere right now? Trying anything new? Working on any deck lists? What you looking at? Uh, right now, I'm not working on anything new. My mind's been all focused on uh, the Playable Power Tournament and then just, you know, crossing all the T's, dotting all the I's for the Marchesa event. So I really haven't had time to really sit down and brew. Um, I'm still playing a lot, but I'm just playing my usual Grixis piles. So nothing new for me yet, but I'm definitely got my eyes on some stuff, especially now with Kamigawa fully out and everything. So we'll see. Hopefully in the next couple of weeks, I'll get back to brewing. I'm just so preoccupied with the TO side of things at the moment. Yeah, you're, you're a busy man, a hot commodity. Uh, 
Yeah, I, uh, I I'm basically doing exactly what you said. I just picked up some of the the Kamigawa cards. Some of those have started arriving in the mail and started playing some games with those. Um, of course, I've, I've had access to them for a while leading up to it, but something feels a little bit better about actually having the cards finally arrive. Uh, yeah, so I'm Bergy and even Opus Thief. I've been working on a little bit of Opus Thief stuff from the database. I've been kind of working on my own, not variant, but just like tune-up of the deck. I don't know necessarily when it's been touched. I'm not really going to go into that or go any around discussion about how long things have been updated and what you should take from that. But I tend to like to try various different things and just kind of tinker with decks from the database. I don't usually play a lot of lists just straight off the database for very long before I start trying some stuff out and seeing what works. So that's what I'm doing with uh, Neon Dynasty cards. Uh, it's been going really well. The lands seem really powerful and some of the spells are interesting, but uh, we'll see. We'll see how things shake out. And we have a whole podcast episode about that. If you didn't listen to the first episode of the Miscast, it should be available wherever you're listening to this episode. So uh, check it out. We do talk about basically every single card from Kamigawa Neon Dynasty that could see play at length in that episode. Uh, yeah, it's just, uh, it's a good, I think it was a good, a good podcast episode. We got a lot of good feedback and hope to produce more good content like that for you later. But Without further ado, let's talk about the Playing With Power tournament. Um, so I don't have a metagame breakdown in front of me, but I think you sent me one. Do you happen to remember what the metagame breakdown is off the top of your head? Otherwise, I'm about to do a lot of scrolling. Uh, yeah, for the most part, I remember. In general, it was a lot of mid-range piles. There was a ton of Yuriko decks. Um, and there was also like a, a decent amount of like faster decks. Like Crick was pretty popular for the tournament. So overall, it was pretty well-rounded. I think in general, the Playing With Power server is known for being very staxy and all that kind of stuff. But it definitely seemed like for the tournament, a lot of people started to just go to the basics mid-range. You can do the slow game. You also can play the fast game in certain pods. And that definitely seemed to be what was very prevalent. And I think when you look at uh, the top 16, once we get there, you'll really see that that pretty much all the lists that made it were mid-range decks for the most part. Obviously, there's a couple turbo decks in there, but a lot of them were just those decks that really don't have bad matchups and are able to grind when it comes to stacks pieces or um, are also able to just have big explosive turns when they want to. And I think that's just where you need to be with CDH in general. you got to be able to do both. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I think we both preach that quite a bit in our casual interactions with people or online or what have you. I'm looking at the what you sent me on the metagame breakdown, and it looks like, yeah, Yuriko is by far the most represented at nine. I think that's nearly double the next most represented, which is a bunch of fives, like Keenan, Thras Vile Smasher, Najila, Crick, like you said. Um, a lot of fives, a lot of fours, but the only thing that really stands out is nine Yuriko. Why Why so many of that deck? That's not like a Staxi deck, right? Like you said, there's like a, a Staxi meta. Is Yuriko good in the face of stacks? Is that... That's not something I would think intuitively. Uh, and that's when I didn't really understand. And like all the people I know who compete in the tournament are like, what is going on? And I don't know why Yuriko is so popular, but at the end of the day, it is a good draw engine. You get a big board presence. You can kind of win those stacksy games. Cause if you're doing like the turn and burn style where you have like a bunch of like 10 drops and like seven drops, even if you're only getting in with like a couple attackers to turn against these stacksier decks you're able to just kill the tail pretty quickly if you keep revealing those high CMC spells. So I guess maybe that was the thought process. Like, I might not be able to pass a ton of spells in one turn, but I can just pressure light tools and get card advantage, and I'll win that way. So that might have been what people thought, but that was something I also thought was very odd. I have no idea why. I don't see, like, anyone playing Yuriko these days, but for whatever reason, this tournament had 
nine or whatever you said, Yuriko players, which was very yeah. interesting. But as you can see, none of them made it to top 16. And I don't think they had the best of records. So, yeah, I mean, the, the deck from a fundamental standpoint isn't that weak, which like it feels really weird to be like, oh, you know, attacking this deck when it was the most represented. But I was not terribly impressed with their secondary game plan like Yuriko seemed a little inconsistent and like you have to play a lot of bad cards in order to make it work but at a base level like you're still a blue black deck that's still the best two cards in c or best two colors apologies in cedh are blue and black followed by red i think grix's base we talk about this a lot grix's base right now is by far the best spot to be and blue and black is the majority of that you do miss out on some key cards obviously breach gamble dockside everybody knows them everybody loves them but it's hard to go wrong starting from a blue and black base. So it is interesting to me to see that much representation and then none of them break into the the top 16. I think that is really telling about somewhat of like the pilots. Cause I do think pilot skill matters a little more disproportionately in CEDH compared to deck decision when it comes to like a multiplayer format versus one-on-one formats like what i'm saying is like one-on-one formats i think deck registration like actually choosing the right deck matters a lot more whereas i think you have a couple more angles you can take and uh, skills you can leverage playing just like being a good cdh player and picking up whatever so i think it speaks some to the the player skill for sure in that pool of nine but also there is something to be said for those decks falling short now i don't want to pay place too much emphasis on tournament results but it is something that's a neat phenomenon to at least talk about and discuss that I don't think is necessarily completely unfounded where it's like, you know, this is the most registered deck, the most popular, none of them break the top 16. I think that tells a pretty convincing story. Yeah, I agree. Like at the end of the day, you still have access to Oracle console, but your value engine is not guaranteed because sometimes it can be hard to get in with Yuriko. And then in order to give your things evasion, you have to play all these cards that are dead in a lot of scenarios. But I think it's definitely like a pretty easy deck to pick up, and that might be why it was so attractive. Like people were like, "This is my first CDH tournament. This is a pretty straightforward deck that has the best combo in the format." But um, yeah, like it was just something odd. Like I, I really, I don't see many people talking about Eureka. I don't really see many people playing it that often in CEDH, and so that was definitely something that stood out to me. And I don't know the entire reason for it. Obviously, we have a lot of speculation, but that is definitely an outlier that I thought was kind of unique because it's just not something you really hear about much these days. Yeah. So before we move on to guessing the top four, is there any decks that you feel were extremely underrepresented? I mean, even Chrom Armix had two copies, so you can't say that one. I think two is a, a really reasonable number. But like, there's a, there's a lot of spicy decks here. You know, we're looking at like there's a Tulane, there's a Light Pause, there's like a Niv, there's a ton of just one of like Spicy's Chainer. I don't know if I mentioned Chainer, Chainer Nightmare Adept. There's a bunch of like really spicy like one-off decks that I, you know, I'd love to see the lists and discuss it, but we only have a very limited time. Uh, is there anything you think should have been more played going into this tournament based on discussions you've had and pods you've played? Um, I think in general, the one that kind of stood out was uh, there's not, there wasn't a ton of, uh, Krom Timna, which obviously everyone likes to talk about Blue Farm being the best list, and I think you see it time and time with tournament results, not everyone's registering the deck, and obviously that has to do with how everyone likes to play the deck, um, since it is viewed as the best deck, some people say that it's boring, but I do think that is something that I thought was interesting, just because everyone hypes up these two commanders so much, there really wasn't that much representation from these two. Like, And granted, you can play a lot of different players with Krom Timna, but... I just thought it was interesting that there was only a handful of decks that were under those commanders at the end of the day. 
Yeah, I mean, in the conversation we've had about what would you take to a tournament, Krom, Timna, like Blue Farm style decks are certainly in my top three that I mention every time. It's usually like that, Najila, and whatever the best Storm deck I'm playing right now is. And we do only see three copies of Timna Krom that were registered in this uh, metagame breakdown. Now, this is a phenomenon that, you know, I'll speak to in a little bit where players, when there is a best deck that is, whether or not it's actually the best deck, but it's accepted as the best deck, a lot of players are obsessed with trying to like break it trying to find the way to just beat it all the time instead of just playing it especially if it's just like a very fair like quote unquote not super unique like if you think about tim necrom it's like what makes this the best deck and it's the fact that you just have two of the best card advantage engines out of the command zone you get two commanders so you're already up two cards to begin with you're playing the pool of the best colors like i said grixis based grixis base is the best place to start and then you have access to the white silences and all those kinds of effects like there's so much going for this particular strategy but it's not overly flashy like you win games by just standard you know interact draw some cards eventually find your spot win the game i think there's a lot of skill in the gameplay with it i think you know it is moderately challenging i think honestly all of cedh especially if you're interacting on a high level is extremely extremely difficult i often quote it as one of the hardest formats i've ever played if not the hardest and you that can be a little daunting i think for players that have maybe never played the deck like you're just going to play whatever your pet deck that you've been playing with your your friends is going to be but also i think there is some incentive if you're playing in a tournament to try to break it and do it in a flashy way and a lot of players i think are really obsessed with trying to find that angle over just being like okay i'm just going to register boring old blue farm right yeah that that is fair and you can see that when we start looking at some of the top 16 lists too, like where people are starting to get a little bit more interesting with their builds and such. Right, right. Which is interesting to talk about, and I think that's that's going to be super sick. Last comment on the, the metagame breakdown. I don't see any copies of Bergy, so I'm going to need some people to start representing Bergy as one of my favorite decks to play in CDH, and I think is extremely underrated. I think that deck's extremely powerful. No copies. I'm ashamed. Get it together playing with power. <laughs> Maybe one day. Right now they're on the Crick train as their monocolor deck of choice, but, you know, we'll see. Come on, you don't get, get Dockside. Have you played with that magic card? It's not okay. I, I played against your Bergy list, and I've been consistently impressed. I'm like, wow, like, he's going to be out of gas. And then it's like, no, he's never out of gas. He's never he out always of gas. has a Trinus Ogre. You always hit Drake <laughs> with your Krom. I don't care if there's three Turbo Adnaz decks at the table. You're hitting Drake with your Krom. He will slander. have the Trinus Ogre, and you will die. Absolutely slander. Well, you get, like, all of two or three tutors in mono red you get like urza saga imperial recruiter and gamble and imperial recruiter often grabs treasonous ogres so you see that card a little bit more disproportionately to the rest of your cards because uh you don't have very many tutors and it's one of the only things you can actually tutor but you are right treasonous ogre real messed up card and the goto players i think will back me up on this one but anyway <laughs> don't hit me i'm mono red hit the black ad nauseum players thanks have a nice day <laughs> All right, let's move on to the uh, the top four here. So I have a list. I'm going to read off the top 16 real quick. Um, this will be a lot for for viewers because there's I can't just say like, oh, there's four copies of this deck because I think it's, is it 16 unique decks in the top 16, 16 that I'm looking at? 16 unique de unique decks. There was two, um, or there's like three Thrasios Timna decks, but they were so different. So obviously instead of saying Thrasios Timna, I wanted to tell you what the actual deck was, which we'll cover as we get there. Of course, of course. So I'm going to read off the top 16 real quick, and then I'm just going to take a wild guess. I've taken no notes before this, and frankly, I don't even remember what Gustav was doing. I think he's playing some kind of Hermit deck, so maybe he's one of the Hermit lists, but uh, I'm just going to read off the top 16 here. So we have 
teamer Malcolm. Now the teamer is what Malcolm plus Tana. Tana, yeah, okay. And then we have Thrasius, File Smasher, Hermit. That's probably Gustav. I had to guess. Now there's no names next to these because, like I said, Mikey's trying to keep it hidden from me so I can get some clear guesses. I'm just reading decks. So we have teamer Malcolm, Thrasius, uh, Vile Smasher, Hermit Druid, Winota, Edric, Krok Sakashima, Razakats, which I believe Razakats is a Thrasius Timna deck. That's uh, Crick. Kindreth Evolution, Yisan, who there's a blast from the past, Blue Farm, who's surprised at that? It's the best deck for a reason. Kess, CST, what does CST stand for? Consult Scepter Thrasios. It's another Timna Thrasios deck. Another Timna Thrasios, but it's uh, Scepter based. Okay, okay. Corvold, was that uh, Food Chain Corvold or is it the Treasure Corvold? It was Food Chain. Really? Really? Wow. All right. Yep. And then we have Thrasios Timna Hulk. Mad Farm and Ishai Jessica. A lot, I've seen a lot of the Ishai Jessica deck like in conversations and stuff. Never played against it, and I don't really see the appeal of no black, and especially playing Jeskai over like Elsha. But uh, like I said, completely outside my ballpark. I don't know anything about these decks, but it is strange to me that that deck seems really, really popular uh, compared Ishai to Jessica, how much of it I see. Yeah, Ishai Jessica, I think, is really good because you have a win con in the command zone, just shy beats like that is real yeah it gets big um, and then on top of that jessica gives you board control and then while jessica aren't like the strongest colors because you don't have black tutors you still have underworld breach and you have intuition lines so you just sit back and chill you start killing off people where you're shy and eventually you just get there because a shy plus jessica is basically a one channel player once you hit um seven power on a shy yeah that's true because she gets so so big that's disgusting so the deck's pretty sweet. Um, yeah, just I think it should honestly be him. played more um, than it is, because I think yeah. it is really strong. It's just, I don't know. It's just one of those decks that just hasn't caught on as much as others. And you know, that's just kind of what happens. It's like Bergy, right? Like everyone talks about Godo. No one talks about Bergy. No one talks about Bergy. Poor sad Bergy. Did you know that card makes like 20? Anyway, I'm not going to get on a Bergy rant. <laughs> that, that'll be a different episode. But yeah, Shy Jessica, I, I hear talked about in theory a lot, but I, I see very, very little of it in tournaments. So yeah, maybe there should be more of that around. All right, well. Let's move on to to guessing the top four based on those 16 decks. All right, all right, all right. All right. So I'm going to guess Thrasius, Vile Smasher, Hermit as... And tell me at the end if I'm right or not yet. I'm going to guess Thrasius, Vile Smasher, Hermit because I think that was Gustav. So that's my Gustav shot. Now I'm going to guess the rest of these. I'm going to guess Blue Farm. I think that deck's really good. So if it made the top, the top pod, that wouldn't surprise me at all. Of course, you know, there's a lot of variants and what have you, but I think that deck's just really good. Uh... God, there's a lot of good decks here. I'm going to guess Razakats. I think that deck's also really, really good and moderately underplayed. Like, actually, that's not true. I lied. I take it back. I think the deck's played about correct for its power level. I see a fair bit of it. I think the deck's really good. Uh, we did see one of the Cricks in here, but I don't think the deck's that good. Same with Yisan. Like, I just feel like it's going to struggle against the best of the best in a tournament, even with skilled pilots. Hmm. I got a lot of respect for Winota. I'm going to pick Winota. I think I may over-respect Winota, but I think it is, in my opinion, by far the best stacks deck. And if you're looking to play stacks, the only thing you should be doing. So I'm going to I'm gonna say there's a nice little diverse strategy range here in the top four and, and throw a little stacks deck in there. All right, how I, do far agree off Winota, I do agree Winota is the one viable stacks deck right now because it's like accidental stacks, right? Like it's an aggro deck and then you just drop 
idiots into play that slow everyone down. And, like, that's just insane. Like, yeah, what a sick deck. It really speaks to how powerful Winota is, too, as an effect, when really aggro isn't very playable in CEDH. Like, I mean, it just takes so much damage to kill a table with just, like, getting aggressive with creatures. Like, the only cards that really can do it are Winota and Ajila for the most part. Sometimes a shy, like you said, but, like, it just doesn't really happen in, in the average game. It's certainly not good as a primary game plan. And then I think stacks, personally, is not very good in cdh right now for a whole host of reasons i think we're actually going to talk about a little bit later in the show but winota being able to close games by being both an aggro and a stacks deck is a really unique phenomenon that like i said i think really speaks to how powerful of a magic card winota herself is so the official top four what is it it is thrashios vile hermit that was gustav you got that correct cool park and shakashima which was pouted by hal uh, All right. Thrasios Timna Hulk, which was uh, Ashani, and then Ishai Jessica, which was played by Veyron. Ishai, Je- Ishai Jessica made the top four. That's that's really impressive, and I think does speak to a lot of under uh, appreciation and maybe uh, a little bit, I guess, under talked about. I, I don't even know if that's true. Like I said, a lot of the prominent people I feel like do mention this deck a lot, but certainly underplayed. I just don't feel like I see enough of that deck. And here it is, you know, doing well in the playing with power tournament. And that's something I even alluded to. Maybe I should have picked it. Maybe if I go on this whole spiel about how I think this deck is underappreciated, I should probably put it in my top four picks. I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassing myself. But yeah, Ashani playing this, uh, this Hulk pile of his has been a real treat to play against. He's just so proficient and i think it does speak i don't know exactly when ashani started playing cedh but i took a break through much of the flash hulk era and i think it really shows just how much he was playing during that time to watch him pilot these these hulk decks and this particular one uh with such proficiency and find find the lines when i i can't even parse what's going on i'll, I'll even ask the table in some spots like you know i have this when am i supposed to interact and they're like i don't know and like we go through it at the end after Shani's done killing us, because obviously that's what happens. And he's like, "Oh, you might could have interacted here, here." And I'm just like, "Yeah, I would have never done that." Okay, I probably should actually do some research on this deck because I have no idea what's going on. Yeah, he is the most proficient Hulk player I've ever met. And also, I think it's really cool that a lot of top four is all people that you and I regularly practice with and help tune their lists. So it's just kind of cool seeing all of them basically with their pet decks. Like Kark Shark Shim has been house pet deck as of recently, and then Hulk's been. Ashani's baby forever while he plays a lot of Gitrog and Corvold and other random things like Hulk has always been kind of like something that is is uh like old faithful or whatever you want to call it so it was really cool seeing them shine on these lists yeah that's so awesome to see friends succeed and especially at a, a big stage like there's a 120 person tournament I mean the win rate you have to have in order to like do well in a CDH tournament is so insane so to see so many people that we play with uh succeeds just a really real uh big treat and mm-hmm. uh you know, kind of makes me kind of makes me want to take him down a little bit. You know, makes me want to get in some pods and start <laughs> start beating him up. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, and of course, Gustav ended up winning with his druid pile, which I think he brewed himself. So, shout out to Gustav. I remember him putting that deck together a few days for the tournament. He's just like theory crafting. Hey, this is kind of I want to do a hermit druid thing. What does that look like? And he, you know, he put that deck together. I think himself from the ground up before the tournament. And that's just a really, really cool story to to hear. You know, this kind of brewing just pay off so well. Yeah, it was literally like two nights before the tournament. He's like, I made a pile, guys. Don't judge me too hard. I'm playing this, and 
I don't even know. Like, I don't even think any of us really looked at it. We were just like, oh, it's a Gustav. Yeah, it's a Gustav pile. Whatever. It'll either be great or horrible with a the chances favoring horrible much more. Yeah, exactly. Like when he put together like, some other random four color piles, and was like, "What are you thinking here?" But he actually, his list was actually really cool. And when we actually start looking at it, um, we'll start to see like he was really trying to meta game, and it really paid off for him. Yeah, yeah, that's that's very true. And uh, of course, I have not seen the deck list yet. So when I go to flip through deck list, which I think is what we're about to move into right now, it is going to be a fresh look for me. So. Uh, Anything else you kind of want to remark? Now, no stacks in this top four. Of course, Winoda, I think, is the only dedicated stacks deck in this lineup. Uh, and, of course, it did make it uh, based on this top four. Um, what does that say? You said playing with power is really stacksy. What does that say about people's perception of stacks' um, viability versus reality, in your opinion? Like, in general, I think stacks, like can work but you need a way to close out the game that's why i think things like Hel- heliod is good because you have an a plus b in the command zone and it's pretty easy to tutor for artifacts in white but i think these people that think oh i jammed a turn one rule of law i'm gonna win the game i can stop everything is just, that that's just like a notion of the past because all these decks while they can go really fast everyone has them chock full of value engines all the, like most people's commanders either draw them cards or get them obscene value like you know t- there's a reason you see a lot of timna brassios uh you know, Krom is in here. It's all these commanders that help you draw cards. So it's like, even when the game is long and you're only able to cast one spell a turn, it's fine. Because then you just keep sculpting. And then the stacks player can't close out because they're also casting one spell. And they don't have a good clock on, like, Winota. And then eventually you're going to hit your Psych Rift. You're going to hit your removal spells. And then people are just, like, out of luck. But I think it just, like, shows, like, stacks is really not the silver bullet to, like, these faster decks. You need to have a deck that can pivot in between going fast or going slow. And just have a good grind plan, and but also be able to jam turn two, turn three if the, if your window opens up. Exactly, and I I do think you're correct, especially with respect to like the three mana rule of law effects. A lot of times they're either too slow or don't do enough. Like players can get out from under it before you can close the game, and that's what's so special about Winota is the card just kills you. It just attacks. It puts more pieces into play aggressively, even under rule of laws. And that is really what stacks is missing in, in the aggregate is ways to win the game. Sure. You can slow the table down. Awesome. But that's not going to slow them down forever. Like you alluded to. We have cards like cyclonic rift. We have cards like culling ritual. And then we even have cards now like Baseju and Otawara. I, I, I mm-hmm. never know how to say that land, but these these lands that aren't even spells that you can use to uncounterably take care of obnoxious stacks pieces, like you can't just sit behind it forever. You have to actually win the game. And that is something that I think a lot of stacks decks miss in their deck construction is the ability to close the game after you've slowed it down. And Winota just bakes that right into the command zone and... um I think in general, stacks is some of the weakest I've seen it. I mean, when I started playing Seated back in my day, uh, Teferi, the Chainveil Teferi was like one of the better decks, or at least, you know, held as one of the better decks. And that was like a dedicated stacks deck that had a combo, an A plus B, out of the command zone. And that's kind of what you're talking about with Heliod. Now, of course, that deck's too slow now, whatever. We've progressed quite a bit in the years since that was a very, very powerful deck. But you know, Heliod's a good call out because that's kind of very reminiscent of the same idea where you have this deck that can 
just tutor for its win condition in some way and then just end the game on the spot after you've slown it down. But that gives you time to find your tutors because you're in mono white or mono blue or whatever and find your combo pieces and get done, get the job done. So I think I think Stacks is a little overrepresented for its viability. And personally, I think Winota is the way to go. Or like you said, Heliod, but in general, I think Winota is the more Winoda, powerful of the two. Yeah, yeah I mean, having access to red cards, real good, real good. Mm-hmm. So let's dive into deck lists, and we'll start with the winner. We'll start with Gustav's uh, Thrasios Vile Smasher Hermit Druid deck. Now, where I want to start with this is, once again, back in my day, uh, Hermit Druid was held as, like, the Charbelcher. Like, when I was getting into CDH, the people that played Hermit Druid just, like, tried to put it in play and win as quickly as possible. Like, that was the boogeyman as far as, like, just dying as fast as humanly possible. And I kind of want... I haven't really seen much of Hermit Druid as CDH has progressed, as I've played more of it, as interaction numbers have increased and interaction has gotten better. I haven't really seen that much of it. And I wanted your thoughts on Hermit Druid as a strategy... Uh, particularly over the last like year or two, is this something that is a dark horse as a, an entire strategy? Um, is this a new take? What have Hermit Druid's decks looked like recently, in your opinion? So, in my opinion, I think Hermit Druid is still like a pretty solid strategy because obviously you get it out, no one answers it. It's like a force them to have it type of situation. But actually, talking to Ashani a before the tournament, he was going back and forth between Hulk or Hermit. And from our discussions, he went with Hulk because we feel Hermit's a little bit too easy to deal with these days because everyone's on a million and one bounce spells and things like that. Like, you need to have either a hasty Hermit or you need to get your Greaves on it to give it Hexproof or you just don't get the the opening. Sometimes, of course, you'll just get there because you jam a turn one, no one has an answer, and everyone just puts their hands up in the air like, yeah, shuffle up. But it's a lot less consistent at getting it off because so many people are running removal and bounce spells, and it's just not as... Uh, definitely not as much of a boogeyman as it used to be, but I still think it's a good strategy because it is very fast and very efficient. But I don't see a Hermit Druid turn one and uh, instantly think we were all dead. But I agree, like, when I first started playing, I saw a Hermit Druid and I would look at my hand, I'd be like, can we pick it up now? Like, do we need to wait? Like, I think it's done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're just, we're just done here. All right, they have the Hermit Druid. Or, you know, once you know the, the Hermit Druid player, you'd be like, all right, we're mulliganing to, to my Lightning Bolt or whatever. You'd find your one or two creature removal spells. Cause you, even now, I mean, I guess a little bit more back then for sure. But, uh, decks are far more counter spell heavy than, uh, removal spell heavy. And so you'd be like, all right, I'm going to go find my, my removal spell because they have ways of getting this thing in uncounterably. Like they have a lot of ways to get it in multiple times. And like, as a result, it was very viewed as an all in strategy, like you, like you said. And I think those have gotten worse as the interaction suites have gotten better. So, uh, just a few things I want to highlight about this deck list. Now we will put these deck lists that we're going over in the show notes. We'll have all four of the, the top four deck lists and they're all different. So it should be easy to pick out which one's which. And you can follow all those players on Moxfield because I believe they are all the authors of their own list they played on Moxfield. So make sure to check them out as well. But let's start by looking at Goosey's list here. The one fishy hermit. Uh, I'm not a hermit druid expert. So I'm just going to kind of glance through and call out some things that I think are really, really interesting and interesting tech for a Hermit Druid deck in non-white colors. Now, previously, I was under the impression that Hermit Druid decks were generically always five color. Uh, I don't know how accurate that is, but every time I've played against the deck, it's been five color for the most part until, I think, like, 
recently where we've seen uh, I know we tried it in Yidris, and of course, this is the same colors as Yidris, non-white, but I've seen a little bit more of the non-white variant. Uh, how how far off am I? Like I said, Hermadruid is kind of a blind spot for me, because for me, the deck more or less disappeared once interaction numbers started going up in my local meta and the pods I was playing. Uh, yeah, so in general, uh, this list was made to be- beat Rule of Law, because he was expecting a lot of stacks. And that's kind of why he went with the Hermit Druid strategy, because you can win by casting one spell, because you dump your deck, get the Dread Return, get your Oracle, and win. Right. Um, and then he was just trying to do everything possible to get around that, because he was expecting a lot of Rule of Law, which I thought was really smart going into the event. And that's also why you see Fiend Artisan and Birthing Pod, and while these cards are quote-unquote slow, um, they just help him get around the one spell clause, because he can Birthing Pod, his two-drop or one-drop into Oracle or Lab Man, and then just cast his console from hand. And things along those lines. And that's what he was really trying to lean into and how he was able to get through prelims so easily because any stacks pod, while they have stacks pieces, they don't have a lot of removal. And it was just kind of like, once again, force him to have it. And then if that didn't work, he had his Hermit Druid to fall back on with a lot of ways to get that out with his Eldritch Evolution. I believe he was on Neoform. Yeah, and Neoform. Yeah, he was on Neoform. He would Neoform a dork and then he'd either get his Hermit Druid or his Oracle and just try to win. So he was trying to just get around Rule of Law and these tax effects by being able to win by casting one spell or cheating out like dread return and things along those lines right yeah so uh, i mean you called out birthing pod there that's kind of one of the first cards i wanted to highlight is i have not seen birthing pod in a cdh context personally since blood pod was like a a deck that people were playing and trying out like that's a really interesting inclusion and i'm glad you took some time to explain that (laughs) uh so we don't have to go into it a little bit more uh, but yeah, like having this ability to to not cast spells and get under rule of law, that's really smart. And that's you know something this birthing pod card brings to the table, especially with two cheap commanders. Like if you're looking at Thrasios, good card advantage engine, everybody knows the whole bit with that one. But Vile Smasher, commonly accepted, doesn't really have a lot of text. Like that damage doesn't really matter. It's just a three drop. So if you're not doing something with that three drop, like potting it away or, you know, whatever, sacrificing it to a diabolic intent, uh, it just doesn't, it just doesn't do anything else. Like it's a commander, I guess, for your fierce guardianships, but like realistically, you, you'll have Thrasios 90% of the time for that anyway. So like I said, birthing pod, I think is a real interesting inclusion that is really heads up and something we haven't seen in a long time. Some spicy tech for this deck full of creatures, but not even that. It's only 19 creatures, but still, once again, Hermadruid deck combined with birthing pod, smart and not something I've actually seen before. Along the same vein, you have Fiend Artisan, another card I don't think I've ever seen in four plus color decks in CADH. This is, you know, another pod effect. I think, what is it? Yeah, it searches the same converted mana cost instead of going up one, but it's the same idea. Like, you know, sack your creature, pay some mana or whatever, go find the other creature. And so there's like redundant effects to tutor that into play without casting an additional spell. Uh, that's, I mean, impressive i obviously you know it paid off i can make some remarks i maybe it's too slow whatever but you know clearly this is a a strategy that works and of course i'd like to hear from from gustav himself at some point and be like hey you know what what overperformed what underperformed but if nothing else the theory which is what what we're here to talk about i think is really interesting and like you said trying to beat rule of laws it's a really smart way to go about it yeah from talking to him a little bit he said that he thinks he went a little bit too hard into eating stacks because um, while he had he did really well in the stacks matchups, obviously when we got to top 16 and top 4, it wasn't as relevant, and he didn't see as much stacks as he was expecting. But I still think, like, I always tell people, like, don't try to meta call, just, like, play what you're comfortable with. 
I think he did a really good mix of playing something he's comfortable with and then putting in smart tech to beat stacks because obviously you can run your board wipes, deluge, whatever to try to beat out stack decks. But I think like implementing birthday pot and beat artisan, this like some tech that may quote unquote be like kind of outdated now. I know there's obviously some people who still make it work, but it's still pretty slow in my opinion. And he made it a way that the deck was still able to perform very well. And I think in his top 16 game, he actually won turn one with this list. Wow. That's so sick. Just, you know, final pod, best of the best, just kill everybody in turn one. Disgusting. Yeah. Absolutely disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That's, yeah, that's impressive stuff. So, yeah, I mean, I, it doesn't surprise me to hear that he maybe went a little hard. There's this concept in, you know, the one-on-one 60-card formats uh, of beating the day one metagame versus the day two metagame. Typically, it refers to... Uh, you know, pe- what people perceive to be good versus what all, all the best players, like, you know, they're going to be playing. Um, and I think that kind of alludes to some of that. It's like, you know, this is a deck designed to beat a lot of the quote unquote day one metagame where it's what, you know, the field at large is playing, but the players that are going to see success over and over again, the good players, the decks they're going to bring to the table aren't stacks decks. So whether or not your deck's tuned, to beat the the masses at large you have to beat both if you're going to win a tournament you have to be able to beat the day one and the day two metagame which is what the whole conversation around that entire thing is about uh but what you hedge for you generally want to hedge for the day two metagame and rely on your own play skill and just getting a little bit of lucky to beat the masses at large because you can't beat everything like you can't you can't beat everything you can't beat everything all the time especially not in a format where there's four players so um yeah it doesn't surprise me to hear that you know, he went so hard on trying to beat rule of laws and stuff, uh, that he, you know, maybe the deck wasn't as optimized for some of the upper pods, but clearly it didn't matter. He just went on turn one anyway. Like you said, just having that power of Hermit Druid to just do that Belcher thing we were alluding to clearly was good enough to just get you through. And you know what? That's what you need to win tournaments. That's just what you need. Like you want to win a tournament. You have to be lucky and good. And, uh, I mean, Gustav certainly proved. Uh, he's got both of that going for him. Moving right along, you know, don't want to hang up too long on one deck list. Uh, some other spicy stuff I see here is uh, a Divining Witch. Is that pretty common in Hermit Druid decks? Just like that extra copy of the Tainted Pact uh, Demonic Consultation? Typically, you, see, you don't really see that one. No, that's not a card you see often in general. Once again, this was him getting around Rule of Law, because now mm. he doesn't need to cast two spells to do Oracle Consult. He can just Divining Witch Oracle or, you know, Things along those lines. So it was just another way to get around those Oracle, or not Oracle, those uh, Rule of Law and other tax effects, because it's also a creature ability. So if there's like a Thalia in play or things like that, or a three ball, it doesn't matter because the Divining which is already in play, he activates it, gets rid of his deck, and then he just needs to cast the Oracle to win. Absolutely. Makes a lot of sense. And to 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 that end, we also see an Aether Vial, a card I don't know that I've ever seen in a CEDH deck. And I, I had a little bit of a conversation in our own Discord about Aether Vial, just with some other players and stuff recently. Uh, they were trying to argue, and you know, I think this is the spot where we can kind of have this conversation on air. They were trying to argue Aether Vial is a metagame call. And I was like, well, that that to me doesn't compute because your deck is either an Aether Vial deck or it's not. That's how it always works in 60 card decks. Like you're not, you don't just slam Aether Vial in things. Like either, you know, Aether Vial is basically four of your spells and the rest of your deck is creatures and lands or you're not an Aether Vial deck, right? Like you have to have a, a lot of repetition at, you know, CMCs that where it's actually making mana. So like the two and three range and you are always going to play Aether Vial because it's one of your best cards. Like that card just makes a lot of mana constantly, consistently. And it's just what you want to play on turn one all the time when you're playing Aether Vial decks in constructed formats. 
this is only a 19 creature deck. I mean, what we're talking about, a fifth of the deck, like that's, you know, embarrassing, frankly, for like, if you told me you had a 60 card deck that was, I mean, whatever, you know, just a fifth creatures and you're an Aether Vile deck, like, what are we doing here? Like, this can't be right. And, you know, I, I'm not really going to say, you know, whether it performed or not. Once again, Goose won. I didn't, I, I didn't compete, but he, he won the tournament. Uh, what are your thoughts on Aether Vile as, you know, another piece to get around these rule of law effects? Is that something that you think we're going to see more of? Is that something we should see more of? Am I completely off here? Honestly, I'm with you where I'm not very high on it, but talking to Gustav, talking to Ashani, talking to Scoots, they're all really like the card and they say you don't knock it until you try it and I'm willing to, to hear them out on that like it's something I just need to try out in a more like creature heavy deck because all oh, 19 creatures isn't a ton you know me my decks run like four creatures. yeah you're on the four to five five plan <laughs> yeah exactly and one of them is a spirit guide so like does that even count not really. uh, no um, no absolutely not and so like I definitely think the card is viable and like the way gustav is describing it to me is that you just get it on two and you chill because then you now have the threat of an instant speed oracle win you now can cheat out your hermadruid on someone's end step and then just activate it in your upkeep and oh, things like good. that that's a good point yeah or like cheat in a gilded drake and then steal someone's combo piece or someone's value engine um getting a, a dothian in response to a wheel so while it's like these interactions like where it might not happen like every single turn you're putting a creature into play it's like the, you have to look at the power of these interactions. Like being able to get a Hermit Druid and then activate it on your upkeep, kind of insane. People aren't ready for it. They weren't prepared. And now you're just winning on your upkeep. Or like I said, Oracle winning on the stack, like things like that. So it's kind of more of this like quality over quantity type thing. You might not be cheating a creature into play every turn, but when you're activating Aether Vile, you might just be winning, which is kind of insane to think about. Yeah, I mean, and I think that speaks to a really, really good fundamental too, where it's like, okay, when the card's dead, it's dead, that sucks. But the, the upside, like the ceiling on it is so high that it may be worth it, even if it's like actively kind of bad the rest of the time. And that is something you do see more of in CDH, where you have these cards that, you know, have the potential to be absolutely cracked up to and including winning the game or just blank cardboard. But you can afford to do that because winning the game is so much harder when you have to kill four players. So. Uh, I think that's a really good point to bring up, having that uncounterable in-step surprise hermit or, you know, even, you know, say you're playing against a hermit deck, a known hermit deck, they activate an, an Aether Vial on two. What do you have to be ready for? Like, how do you respond? Like, if there's a Dothy coming in, like, maybe you'll do something different than if there's a hermit droid coming in or if there's a Gilded Drake. So I think having that, or even like Dockside, having that kind of range of and and threat to your Aether Vial that's on two and you're just sitting on it, even if it's not doing something, you know, every turn or even most turns, that one activation is powerful enough to just blow out the table and have you win the game. Like you said, maybe it is worth the inclusion. And I think that is a counter argument to my entire spiel that does have water. And, you know, I, like I said, I'd like to speak more to uh, Goose and as you know, this deck is iterated on because I think this Goose certainly exposed kind of a disrespect for hermit druid in general that maybe we'll see more hermit druid we'll see more respect for hermit druid we'll see more creature removal spells i think that's what we should see i don't know if that's what we will see but i think that's what we should see as a response to you know a hermit druid taking down a tournament like this even if it's warped to beat a stacks metagame and, and it still went all the way and beat the whole you know beat the entire room all right. Last few points on the deck list before we move on. Some interesting things I want to call out. Uh, you're looking at 28 lands. I think that's you know, a little on the low side, but when you have as many mana dorks as uh, Gustav does, I think that's absolutely justifiable. You're looking at 
uh, no Simeon Spirit Guide, but you have Elvish Spirit Guide. I think that one is kind of a miss. Like, it's still good enough if it's in your colors, in my opinion, even if it doesn't. It's not as good. Like, certainly it is worse than Elvish Spirit Guide. There's no way to argue that. Like, it doesn't cast your Hermitry. It doesn't cast your mana creatures, whatever. But I think just having access to the Spirit Guide, I think that that has to be worth it. <laughs> you know, that has to be better than something in the in the deck list. But overall, I think there's a lot of really smart stuff going on here. You're looking at a lot of the Neoforms, a lot of the, the finales, all the creature tutors and stuff like that. You're looking at post-mortem lunge and shallow grave in case things go wrong. You do get interacted with. That's a one card. Bring it back and go right then and there. So it's almost punishing. So like, you know, if you put in a Hermit Druid and they instant speed, you know, you instant speed, bring it back. Like you almost kind of help them because now they can go faster than they could have if it wasn't in the graveyard and it makes your entomb better. Like there's a lot of smart stuff going on here that some of it is staples of Hermit Druid deck list, some of it not. But either way, I think... You know, it's still a well-built deck, even with all the tech and spice going on. And I do think, like I said, I think the pod stuff is really, really intriguing for me because it just it shows a lot of versatility when you can play like things like Dothy and you know Gilded Drake and Phantasmal Image and some of these like versatile creatures, and also just be able to threaten a win from all these like creature tutor style effects. Um, yeah. Anything else you want to say on this deck list before we move on? No, I think we covered all the stuff I want to talk about. <laughs> cool. All right, so congrats to Goose. Your deck looks sweet, and uh, who knows? Maybe I'll give it a try. I'm a big fan of some non-white decks. All right, let's move on to just next on the list. We have the Ishai Jessica list. Now, I've never looked through this deck list before, and frankly, I don't know that I've ever actually looked at any Ishai Jessica list. It's just not really something that's been my speed or has interested me. I'm a big fan of, like, Storm stuff with, like, black cards like Rituals or, like, specifically Bergy, where it just makes all the mana for you out of the command zone. So, you know, not really my speed. I don't know how much experience you have looking through deck lists of Ishai Jessica, but, you know, this is going to be, maybe I will have a little less knowledge of this particular archetype, but still some things I want to highlight. Yeah, so in general, uh, Ishai Jessica is just uh, Jessica good stuff. Like I said, uh, Ishai is a clock in the command zone that can get you wins. Like, obviously, I wouldn't count on playing this deck and one-shotting everyone to death. Um, Usually, when you go for that strategy, in my experience, you kill two players and then the last one remaining wins. But mm-hmm. in general, it's still a threat, and you can just delete someone very easily as soon as, like, turn two. If you have a turn one Ashai into turn two Jessica, and people cast spells, as people tend to do on this format. Yeah, they do, they uh, do cast spells. Uh, other than that, then it's just like, uh, you, you win through Underworld Breach, and that's, like, one of the easier combos to get to in these colors, because you have a lot of tutors that can get your instance, and uh, intuition becomes a one-card win. Uh, some of the spicier stuff in this list, since you're not as familiar, is definitely Stormkill Artist, Breaker Horror, um, Whirlwind of Thought is the one that I... Yeah, I was going to call Whirlwind of Thought out for sure. That one, I mean, that's a sweet card. That one that one really speaks speaks to me. Whenever you cast a non-creature spell, draw a card. Like, those are some words I am interested in. But I've always heard that card kind of generically accepted as a little too expensive for what it is. You know, I, I've heard all the things. It's like, this card is not very good. Uh, interested to see it having a, a place here. Uh, do you have thoughts in particular? Have you ever played against the card? I I have not actually played against it on the table in, you I've, know, I've, had the game. I've played against people with it in their lists, and I'm never impressed. Like, it's three-color pips is hard. This effect, it's it's good, but it's not good enough, in my opinion. Like, you're paying four mana for this. Like, the way I view card evaluation for the most part, and people can flame me as much as they want for this, Adnaz is five mana, instant speed, essentially win the game. So if you're paying <laughs> anything close to five mana... It better be doing something close to what Adnaz is doing in my mind. And if not, I'll pay that much mana for it. 
Yeah, and specifically the lack of Archmage Emertus. Like, I see that card a lot in the lower color decks. Like, when you're a little more color restricted, like, I think it's in Karak Sakashima and, you know, whatever. Some of the mono blue lists that I've seen, uh, you have uh, Archmage Emertus. And that, that card is eschewed here in favor of, you know, Whirlwind of Thought, despite kind of doing the same thing. Uh, do you have thoughts on, on that card? Is that card maybe, should, should that be what whirlwind of thought is? Should we have both? Like, if we want one of them, do we want both of them? Like, what is the tangible difference for wanting to lean towards whirlwind of thought in this deck versus something like Archmage of Burtis? Cause I'm, I'm under the impression creatures are actually harder to interact with. Like, they both get pyroblasted, red blasted, but like, in general, creatures are a little harder to interact with. Can't spell pierce and fluster storm or miscast. Now, you can't do those things to whirlwind of thought. I guess you can spell pierce and fierce guardianship. Those actually matter. And force and negation. So there, there is some relevant differences, but, uh, yeah, what are your what are your thoughts on that direct comparison? Because like I said, we don't see an Archmage Emeritus in this 13-creature lineup here. I definitely would prefer it to be an Archmage Emeritus here. Um, obviously, this one lets you draw cards off of your rocks and like a few other things since it's just not a creature spell, which Archmage Emeritus is instant or sorcery. Right. But the fact that Archmage is whenever you cast or copy an instant or sorcery, you draw a card, is just insane. I've seen blowouts where someone fluster storm, storm count five, and now they countered a game-winning spell and drew five cards. And drew five. Yeah, and your brain freeze, like, works as just a magic card. Like, if someone casts, like, three spells, you can be like, okay, brain freeze. Yeah, draw three cards. Oh, okay. That, that got a yeah. little better. <laughs> yeah, draw three cards and maybe set up your graveyard for a breach turn. Like, eight. Yeah, that's pretty good. I, I, I think I think that's the better card here. Um, granted, sure. I don't play a whole bunch of Just Guy, but... Right. But also, it's easier to cast, because while it's two blue pips, that's easier than having a blue, a white, and a red, in my opinion. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, we can look at the mana breakdown here, but yeah, the deck is 44% blue as, as it starts. So like, obviously the mana leans, uh, blue as it is. So double blue is almost certainly easier than having both of your off colors. Uh, yeah. So I think that's a spicy one that I would like to actually play with. Like I said, it's very much my stuff. I love song of creation, like all these like goofy enchantments that just draw a ton of cards. I'm super into it. Uh, but I have heard the general consensus kind of be lower on that card. Very interested to see it here. Um, and like I said, l the lack of Archmage. To that end, I mean, we also see a Teferi Master of Time. That's like another four mana, like card advantage engine, which, you know, has the exact same mana cost as Archmage Emeritus. What is your opinion on Teferi? Like, I have not played against the card, I think, ever. I, I don't even think I've seen it put on the stack, but it was on like the list of CDH staples, um, that Moxfield had put out. And I was surprised, like, when I like added all of them just to see kind of what was in the list. Like, that was the one I think surprised me the most. It's like, this is a CDH staple. I don't even know that I've ever played against the card. Uh, obviously, you know, it has some powerful words on it, and if it stays in play, it ha you know, can have a huge impact on the game, phasing out relevant creatures and commanders, and you know, constant looting through your deck. Take it, all the lines on the card matter, but at a four mana spot, when you're competing with, like you said, you know, things that you know, for one more mana are basically just winning the game, or even at the same mana cost, you're just like flat out having a far more warping impact on the game state. In in my opinion, or at least from my perception. Where do you fall on the Teferi Master of Time in some of these like more mid-rangey, you know, control style decks? In general, I feel the card is heinously underplayed in CDH right now. I underplayed. Think I see it in, okay. Uh, overplayed. Overplayed. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah, I see it in so many lists on the database, and so many people have it in their list, and I don't think it's that great. But I do like it in a shy because I think the issue a lot of CDH lists run into is that they don't have ways to protect it, or they don't have like great ways because. You may have a bunch of creatures, but your creatures are all really good. Like, you don't want to trade a, your Dranth Magistrate to defend your Teferi most of the time, things along those lines. But here, with a Shy being the house that it is, and then you have Jessica to clear out weaker creatures out of the way, 
I think you have a way to keep him alive a long time. And the fact that he can phase out a creature you don't control, that could be the make make or break. Like, say, you're playing this deck against me. My one creature with flying in my Krom Armix deck is Krom. You phase mm-hmm. out my Krom and now I'm dead. You're just yeah, you're just dead to the the shy beatdowns. Yeah, I mean if you're trying to win with combat damage, basically ever having more creature removal spells can't really be understated, especially on something that does more. Like it's not just a creature removal spell; it's also you know a card advantage engine, etc. Okay, yeah, no, yeah, I'm on board. I like it. Yeah, so I like it here a lot, but people who jam it into like every blue list, I'm just like, what are you doing? This is four mana. <laughs> it's not even card advantage, right? Because it's draw a card, discard a card. Yeah, yeah. I feel like it, I feel like it got leaked, and people were like, oh my god, I'm gonna get two extra turns with this, and. I'm yet to see anyone ult this thing. It never sticks around that long where the game ends from someone else winning before you get there. That's fair. I mean, that's fair enough. Um, that's kind of where I fall to. And I, I do like your points that you brought up. I, I was a little lower on the card, you know, b- before asking you about it. After your spiel, I think I'm a little higher and willing to accept that it, it has a pretty good home here. I do think it is obviously only playable in some of these like more fair decks that are constantly looting to find interaction because that can be worth a lot of cards. Like, living through the turn just matters a lot more than anything else. So, uh, you know, not being card advantage matters a lot less if you're just finding interaction to, to keep you alive. So, uh, I do like it a fair bit here. Um, yeah, moving right along, we see uh, a couple of removal spells. You know, you still have, like, the swords and all that stuff. We see Rolling Earthquake. I don't know how common that is as the particular sweeper of choice. I mean, I've seen things across the years, like pyroclasms and all those kinds of effects. And I do think your choice of creature removal spell is meta-dependent. Like, people use meta-dependent to justify a lot of not meta-dependent things, in my opinion. But your choice of creature removal spells is meta-dependent, in my opinion. What creatures are you looking to answer? And that is the question you should ask yourself when building your deck. And then that is the question that you should answer with the cards that you put in your deck to answer creatures. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, Rolling Earthquake is definitely one you don't see a lot of anymore. But when you don't have black, uh, you know, you got to do what you got to do. And Ashai is always going to be the biggest thing on the board. So right. You can, you can block that's... a big thing. So you need to get rid of the a lot of little things at a reasonable rate. Exactly. So you want to be able to just keep connecting with it. Um, you can get out like all the hate bears and stuff because obviously, like I said, the main way that this deck tries to win is breach shenanigans. So you need to be able to kill those Dothies, kill those Dranis, and sometimes Jessica might cost too much mana to get out, or there's other threats because a bunch of people you were in a pod with two Crom players, and now they have blockers for your shy. So I do kind of like the the rolling earthquake here. Um, yeah. I think that it's a pretty good include just because Ashai is always the biggest thing. And that also could be a win con, too, the way I see it. Like, Ashai is going to be pressuring life totals really well. Mm-hmm. And there might just be a point in the game where you aren't able to kill off everyone, but everyone's sitting at 15 life or around 10 life, and then you could do just a fireball everybody. And, Taste it. Yeah, exactly. I'm <laughs> sure like that, that doesn't happen often, but I do see that as a potential answer here yeah i mean especially with things like storm kill artisan where you could just be making a, a ton of mana as you're casting a bunch of spells like yeah being able to just like fireball the table after you've hit him a couple times with the shy that's real and you can like you can even sell you can be like oh i'm hitting you because i hit the other player and i don't want to you know i don't want to kill the whole table and so you get everybody fairly low and then you're like surprise fireball all of you taste it <laughs> so yeah that's a that's a cool line they have they have access to and i, I don't know how often that comes up but it is really sweet um, last couple things I kind of want to touch on before we can move along. Uh, first of which is a card that I thought we would see more of when it was spoiled. Um, and we haven't, and I really like the inclusion here is Ravel, uh, well, Flame Scroll Celebrant slash Ravel in Silence. 
Uh, it's just like another silence as your opponents can't cast spells or activate a planeswalker's loyalty abilities this turn, and then you exile it, and then the front half's just like a mopey creature. So most of the time, it's just, you know, only a, a silence effect for white white but you can actually play it as a as a blocker if there's like a ragavan or something you know you need to block uh i think that card i mean having maximum silence effects especially in you know lists that are low on colors but have white i think you basically just want to play all the silence effects so having you know grand abolisher plus ranger at captain of eos plus flame pro celebrant you know plus actual silence i think that's that's really really heads up i think that makes a lot of sense and not something i've actually seen a lot of yeah, the only person I've seen do that is Hal in his Mad Farm list. Mm-hmm. He actually got a lot of flack from this for a long time. Like, yeah, I don't get like it. you run too much interaction, blah blah blah. And he's like, Silence just wins when I'm trying to go off, and it also stops other people from winning. And I agree because it's it's oppressive. Like I played against Hal on that list. You know, everyone's like, oh, the blue players are tapped out. He's like, Silence. And then the next person tries to Nas. He's like, Orms chant. And oh, it's that's like, so what? sick. Yeah, so sick. Yeah, and then on top of that, he still has the ranger captain he hasn't popped yet. And it's just like, oh, now he gets to save this for his turn and we're just dead. Like, Yeah, like, and they, they're the best kind of interaction, too. You know, I've seen some flack that force negation gets a lot where it doesn't actually protect your combo, unlike force of will. You know, interaction that can function early in the game for stopping wins as well as protect your own wins is by far the highest premium. You know, that's those are the cards that you want in your deck first as interaction. And Silence is certainly among those. I mean, Silence is just one of the best, I think, one-mana interaction spells in the format, and it's not even blue. So, like, that's yeah. impressive. And, of course, given that that's the case, I think you want as many copies that are similar to that card as possible. You just want as much of that effect as possible. And, you know, Flamestroll Celebrate seems like an easy include here that I think gets overlooked a lot. Smart, smart heads up stuff. Uh, yeah. And then the last thing I kind of want to touch on is the Holebreaker Horror with basically no way to tutor it. Unless I'm missing something, you can't polymorph it. You can't, you know, tutor it into play. There's no neoforms. There's no, you're just, this card is just in your deck. And why I want to call this out as kind of smart. Uh, well, there's, there's actually a few reasons. So first of all, the card that I used to see fill this role, like I used to see people do this in their mid-range decks where they just play some like big thing to like win the game in your mid-range deck. And it was always consecrated Sphinx. And I think that card is fairly rancid. Like, you know, I'm, I'm a big, big proponent for playing both Pyroblast and Red Alone Blast in any red deck list, which this deck of shoes, get your blasts in your deck. And I, I just think it's so wrong. I think the blasts are incredible. And I am, especially with Chrom, anyways, I'm not going to go on too much of a tired. I think the blasts are comically underplayed because they're so powerful. Now, this might be my legacy speaking, playing too much legacy where you play five blasts across your 75s or whatever. But like the red blast and power blast is just very, very powerful uh, red interaction, especially when everyone has Ristic Studies and Mystic Remoras and five mana beaters that also draw cards. Like for answering that for one mana, one mana thing to answer a five mana spell or more, like or whatever, two mana spell. Yeah, insane. And so I will basically always avoid putting cards in my deck that get blasted for that cost more than like three. Like Ristic Study, obviously worth it, but like once you start going past that, like I don't even like cards like Teferi, Whirlwind of Thought, even like Song of Creation. Like I put the card in my deck sometimes, but it's certainly not among my favorites. I just I just don't want to get blasted. Like <laughs> I am so scarred from getting Fire Blasted or an Elemental Blasted, and so that like is immediately what kicks in. But that's not even the beginning of the problems. Like just getting it bounced, like getting your Consecrated Sphinx bounced is like horrible. It's just so bad. It's like oh here's my six mana thing I have to cast in my main phase, bounce it. It's like oh jeez, like. <laughs> Jeez. Like, obviously, the upside's really, really high, but the the answers to the card being all basically, like, one mana 
is just so unacceptable to me. And Holebreaker Horror doesn't suffer that problem. It costs seven mana, so it is more mana. That sucks. Okay, darn. But it has flash. That's a huge upgrade. Not having to tap six mana on your main phase, huge upgrade. Okay, that's just where we start. And it's also uncounterable, so you can't blast it on the stack. You have to wait till it resolves, at which point the ability is online, and that suddenly gets fairly difficult because they can start doing things with it, as well as just being an infinite mana outlet. Like, I think if you look at the lines for Jeska, I think it's actually just a win condition with, like, you know, being able to make infinite mana with your mana rocks, and then you Jeska everybody infinitely. So it's just, like, it does it all. Like, it wins on the spot with infinite mana from your mana rocks, especially in a long game, because how are you casting this thing without mana rocks, right? Like, it's just, it, you're going to have the rocks. It, uh, you can play it at instant speed. And, you know, it, it's powerful enough of an effect where you're not just tapping out. Like, it is interaction. Like, the card, if you have any spells at all, it doesn't matter what it is to cast, it's a piece of interaction. So, it even matters if, you know, there's Dranith and some other problems to where you can't just win on the spot. Like, the card, uncounterable, comes in at instant speed, and is interaction which is worth a lot more to me than you know just drawing two extra cards every time someone draws a card but you had to tap six mana on your main face so you're just kind of once again doing the ristic study and hoping to draw an interaction yeah i think the card's insane and our friend eric is he's recently been putting it into his uh timna crom list um it's not blue farm it's like a more mid-rangey just like pile he calls it draw engines tribal mm-hmm. um and if he just resolves a hole breaker crack and he doesn't even have an infinite outlet in the command zone we're all just like Okay. Uh, yeah, just what do beat we do it. From here? Good luck. Yeah, like yeah. it may not win-win on the spot, but you're dead. Like we're done here. <laughs> this card is he, a little messed up. He's gotten it out, I think, in three games, and um, he didn't win that turn, but he won all three of those games because we couldn't deal with it. Weird how that works. Yeah, yeah no, right. I, I'm in the same boat. It's like it doesn't have to necessarily just win the game on the spot, and that's why it makes it a good fit, I think, for mid-range style decks, and especially for this list. I think it makes a lot of sense. I think it's a really sizable upgrade, but it would look out of pr- out of place to people that are used to seeing it as like a polymorph card or whatever, divergent transformer or anything like that, like ways to tutor it out. Like seeing it in this Jeskai list may look a little off, but I think it's actually really, really smart. Yeah, I agree. 29 lands, love the high land count, especially in a mid-range deck without mana creatures. Wouldn't actually mind an extra land or two. You could probably play like a, what is it, Shatter Skull Smashing or something. Uh, even like uh, the Seagate Restoration. I like that card a lot in decks that don't play Ad Nauseam. It's just like, could be a really big draw spell, but also just like as a land 90% of the time. I wouldn't hate seeing some of those cards make this deck list. But um, in general, I think 29 lands is still a good number. And yeah, I think that's all I, bet I have to say on this list. Anything else you want to talk about? Should be on 27 lane. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Right. Good talk. Uh, <laughs> moving right along. Let's move on to Jamaican Dudes deck list. And this one's, I mean, this one's a real treat. Uh, 28 creatures. No Aether Vial. We're looking at, of course, the Thrasios Timna Protein Hulk deck. So no Flash, which is typically what you see and hear about when you talk about Protein Hulk combos is going with Flash, doing it turn one, degenerate, busted, darn. Uh, instead, you know, we're kind of doing this, I, I hate to say fair, but like certainly much more fair than Flash is. Uh, there's nothing fair when Ashani's playing Magic. I mean, there's nothing fair in CDH, right? What even is fair? But yeah, we're, I mean, we're looking at a lot of choices that I think are really, really interesting because you also have the Cephalid Breakfast stuff going on. Now, I don't know how much you know about Cephalid Breakfast. It was a legacy deck that did the Cephalid Illusionist plus whatever. It, is it Nomad's Ill Core where you just infinitely... Nomad's Encore. Yeah, yeah, you... Target your deck, throw it all in the trash, 
do busted stuff out of the graveyard. The, kind of the Hermadrid thing, but not Hermadrid, because I think Hermadrid is banned in Legacy. Uh, yeah, but that, uh, Cephalid Breakfast was a Legacy deck, and they've done all kinds of things with it over the years, and you have that kind of stuff going on here, too. So you have 28 creatures, and some of them are some readers. <laughs> I actually got a Shawnee. He activated a Survival of the Fittest in one of the games we were playing ahead of the tournament, and he's like, okay, yeah, what do you want? And I was like, well, I don't, I don't know. Do you have your list? He's like, ah, it's not up to date. Okay, sure. And so he just like points out some creatures. And I think I had to read no less than four of them. <laughs> and so it's just like, okay, uh, I'm going to lose this game. I feel like I'm way ahead. And I did lose that game. I lost that game to, to a Shawnee. So yeah, just, I, I knew as soon as I had no idea what was going on that I just absolutely had zero chance of winning. So let's call out some of the better. Uh, I guess less known creatures that we're looking at here. So we have, you know, Academy Rector card I haven't seen in a while. Go grabs the the pattern of rebirth, which is you know a way to just tutor. Uh, I think get your Hulk into play, right? When enchanted creature dies, that creature controller may search their library for creature card, put that on the battlefield, then shuffle. Yeah, sure. I, I it's a four man enchantment that I, I believe that's what he went and got with the Academy Rector because with a sack outlet you sack the Academy Rector, go grab the pattern mm-hmm. rebirth, put the pattern on something else, sack it, go get the Hulk, sack the Hulk, etc. Um. Yeah, so we have Academy Rector. I think that's really sweet. I mean, I, you don't really see much of that card. I mean, once again, that was another card that was sees a lot of play in Legacy. I was kind of surprised to see it not really have a home in CDH as much. And uh, it's a really spicy one to see here. Do you know off the top of your head the text of Apprentice, Apprentice Necromancer? I do. Why do you know what that card does? I used to play Mirren. Oh, all right, fine, fine. The yeah, good old days. Yeah, I have no idea what that card was. I didn't recognize the art. I didn't recognize the card. I was literally a reader from front to back, and I've played Magic for a long time. So yeah, one and a B, uh, Zombie Wizard 1-1. One, one. B, tap it, sacrifice it, return target creature from your graveyard to the battlefield. That creature gains haste at the beginning of next instep, sacrifice it. So yeah, like you can instep Hulk people, I think. I don't actually know how you necessarily instep it, but I'm pretty sure you can instep it. And... Yeah, that's the important part. Is it, it sacks your Hulk for you, so you bring right. it back and then it sacks exactly you bring the Hulk back and then. But that's what I'm saying. It sacks on the end step, and so you have to be able to win an instant speed. And I don't even remember how necessarily that works, but I know it does. Um, because it has to for Flash, right? So all the Hulk uh, stuff. Yeah, Nomads Encore, the Cephalid Illusionist Oracle. Okay, okay, yeah, you just mill yourself in response. Mill, okay, you, yeah. yeah. So this, this, like, off. literally, I'm showing how little I know. And this is probably all the players that play during Flash Hulk time frame are probably just super cringing right now. It's like, this guy claims to know anything about CDH. Look, I took a break during the Flash Hulk thing, okay? So Hulk is easily the biggest hole in my knowledge for CDH because I just, I, yeah, no, I don't play against it. Never really played against it that much when it was huge, even like nobody in my local meta played it. They're just like, whatever, that's degenerate. I'm not doing that. So. I have no idea what's going on. So Mikey's going to carry the torch on this one. Uh, yeah. So moving right along. Once again, this is like, I think he takes the opportunity to be a lot more of a creature deck. Like he holds up three mana a lot of the time. And we see like even mind sensor opposition agent, like all of those kinds of like blow you out creatures for three mana at instant speed. Um, and trust me, they have. And uh, I think obviously that makes a lot of sense because you need creatures to sacrifice and your deck just works around that a lot. Um, but you know, once again, like I said, this is a dedicated creature deck, and there's no Aether Vial. God, this is see, this is the stuff that makes the inner 60 card player in me just like just completely lose my mind. It's like, how is there an Aether Vial in a 13 creature deck or whatever, and this one has 28? Like, what are we doing here? <laughs> uh, he wanted to play Aether Vial, and I talked him out of it, and then he saw Gustav play it, and then he got mad at me. 
He still made the I top four going. pods. What do you think that eighth vial was going to save you from dying on turn one to Gustav? Come on, Ashani, get it together. <laughs> well, Gustav won. He won uh, turn one, top sixteen, not top four. Top four. Oh, was, all right. uh, yeah, sorry. Top four was a longer game, but that's all right. Yeah, that, that's more what I would expect anyway. Ashani's just always mad at me. There's something. I counter his spell. He's mad at me. I tell him that I talk him out of including a card. He still makes it a top four. It's like maybe that would have won me the tournament. I was like, I guess the chance isn't zero. You got me. I have a lot of respect for Ashani because when I'm doing my long storm turns, he's just kind of whatever. He's over it. He's like, just let me know if I'm dead. He's not one of those that tries to track all the mana and all this, what have you, which I I don't mind people that do that. He's like, "Uh, I'm just going to mute death and go do something else on my computer here. Let me know if we're dead. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) He's he's an at me when you're done kind of guy. I, I can appreciate that. Anyways, yeah, we see, like, I mean, there's just a ton of weirdos in here. There's, like, Bloom Tender, Body Snatcher. I mean, you probably know these oh, cards you, if you've played Hulk. Have but. you seen Volrath Shapeshifter? Because that's oh, a shiny spice. Yeah, Volrath Shapeshifter. Or we're getting, I'm going to an alphabetical order here because there's a lot to look at. Yeah, the Body Snatcher makes you discard a card. And when it's put, it itself is put in the graveyard from play, you return that card from Grave to play. Just, like, a really weird creature reanimation spell. But I guess it works with survival, kind of. I don't know. Really strange card. Um, of course, the Cephalid Illusionist, which mills, mills you and gets targeted. Carrying Feeder is a one mana sack outlet. That makes a lot of sense. Collector Oof makes a lot of sense. Dark Confidant, I think, is a solid include. Dothy, obviously. Da-da-da-da. A lot of mana creatures. Is there an Elvish Spirit Guide in here? Uh, no. really, just couldn't, couldn't find room for that one. What is with people and their spirit guides? I'm going to take this moment to, to, to soapbox a little bit. Play more spirit guides. This I think CDH is kind of figuring that one out slowly over time, but we're like in the midst of it where not everyone's figured out. Play more spirit guides. Spirit guides are cracked. If you could play another Lotus Petal, you would. You're not. I get they're different. Don't come at me and tell me they're different. I know. But the point is, they're busted. They're they're banned in multiple formats. Like please, please play more spirit guides. Yeah, I agree with that. And um I got I was called a madman when I cut dorks in evolution for spirit guides, because I played both of them. I was wanting to like introduce that to the evolution deck. And people are like, you're crazy, what are you doing? It's not permanent mana. And, I, and then I showed them how much faster their deck could be by just putting in spirit guides and doing like more stuff like with mana morphos and things like that. And they're like, oh, and now everyone's basically playing my list up and still plays Evo. Dying deck, but you know, it's around a little bit. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Oh, I lied to you. There is an Aether, uh, Aether Vial on this list. I lied to the entire cast. I'm, I'm so sorry. There is an Aether Vial on this deck list. So... Oh, I right. totally forgot that too. Aether Vial's the tech. I'm telling you, Aether Vial's the tech we all missed. I mean, I certainly missed. I did not, I would not have registered Aether Vial if I played in this tournament. And apparently that was the thing to be doing is Aether Vial. Get your Aether Vials now. Right now. <laughs> uh, anyways, moving along. I don't even think we've gotten through all 20 of these creatures. This is ridiculous. Nomad's in core. Yeah, the thing to target. Opposition Agent, Purting Hulk, obviously. Viscerous here. All right, let's read this Volrash Shapeshifter card. All right, one UU. Shapeshifter, 01, busted. Three mana for an 01, talk to me. And it says, as long as the top card of your graveyard, the top card of graveyard, great, is a creature card, Volrash Shapeshifter is a copy of that card, except that it, re- except that Volrash Shapeshifter retains its abilities. What? All right. As long as it's a top, as long as the top card of graveyard is a creature. So it can't be anything else. It has to be a creature. It's not like Shallow Grave, where it just looks for the top creature. The top card of your graveyard has to be a creature. It's a copy of that card, except that it retains its abilities. And its so abilities the top is... Of the, so the top of the graveyard switches, it changes creatures, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. 
And yeah. it has the ability to two mana, choose and discard a card. So I guess you can just like play it as three mana, two mana, discard your Hulk and surprise you have a Hulk. Uh, also, yep. I've, I've seen them like search for it. I think you can like search for it and like make another Hulk and then go further if you need like a creature piece of interaction or something. Um, yeah, I don't really know. If you, cause you can do your first Hulk pile, have this in there as well as something else, like this Viscerous Seal, insert some other card, like Granabolisher. And then the top of your graveyard is now Hulk. Now this has the Hulk abilities. So you sack it with Viscerous here and now you have your second Hulk pile. And yeah. You and you can just thing. keep going. Yeah. You can make more creatures. With, yeah. With Granabolisher protection this time. I'm not going to lie to you. I assumed when I saw that 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 was just part of Hulk stuff because it looked so seamless. Like, it was incredibly impressive. Uh, I'm surprised to hear that that's just, like, Ashani's tech. That's uh, so smart. Like, it just looked literally seamless with the deck. Like, it just... Yeah, this is obviously something they would be doing. Adi Snatcher is, like, the classic one, but this one, I've never seen anyone play it other than Ashani. And I I did play during Flash Hulk, Shuffle Hulk, and all those days. Um, He's the first person I've seen play this card, and I'm just like, damn, yeah. I had the same reaction as you. I was like, that's cracked. Yeah, the fact it just, like, works. Like, it's not just, like, a piece of dead cardboard. Like, whatever, it pitches to force. It also is, like, a card you could just play. Like, you can actually just cast this thing, and everyone's like, well, what does that do? And then it's like, oh, we're dead. Like, mm-hmm. if this thing resolves, like, we're just dead if he has Hulk in hand. We don't know if he does or not, so do we have to counter it or not? Like, it's just genius. Genius. Awesome card. Awesome, awesome card. And then, of course, a Wandering Archaic. So that's all. I mean, 28 creatures. I didn't go over every single one. Skipped over a lot of the mana creatures and stuff. But some really smart stuff going, going on with this uh, deckless construction here. All right. Uh, yeah, I mean, God, this list is so different from normal, like, I guess, quote unquote, normal CDH decks. Like people talk about CDH like it's vintage where you have like whatever, 30 of the cards are the same between every deck. And like this deck is just not the case at all. <laughs> like maybe some of your lands. Well, there's some weirdos in this list. Uh, but yeah, you do see the typical tutors. You see the demonic tutor, intent, evolution, finale, neoform, all that. But this one also has natural order since you're a Hulk deck. You know, you, you don't mind the green creature only restriction. And you do have access to a natural order. I think that's pretty sick. Um, I'll reanimate too. I think that makes a lot of sense when you're a creature deck, just having that one mana. All right, I'll try again. Like, we're going to do this. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, reasonable interaction suite too. Like, despite all these creatures that, I mean, once again, also interact. Like, you have, like, even Mind Sensor, Opposite Agent, Collector Roof, all that stuff. You have interaction baked into your stack style creatures. But you also just have, like, interaction spells. You have the Abrupt Decay, Assassin's Trophy, Culling the Weak. Like, all these removal spells, you have Dispel, Fierce, Flush of Storm, Force. It really goes to show that, like, Ashani, despite having a bunch of weirdos in his deck, doesn't skimp on good deck-building fundamentals, where you keep your interaction count high, and, you know, you still play, you know, all the good cards that you see that are, like, good. you even have a Swords to Plowshare. Like, you just have all the good interaction and, and the stuff that protects your combos, like silences and veils, without compromising your ability to, you know, have a combo that takes up kind of a lot of slots and, you know, has, you know, be able to play all of these creatures, you still have, you know, all these spells that also just work on base rate. Mm-hmm. Also, sure. one of the only slaughter-packed decks I've ever seen. I do kind of want to call that one out in particular. So like, kill your own Hulk. That's so sick. So sick. And it honestly has mattered a lot more for killing other stuff. It's been, I mean, it's just been impressive. I, I think that card is awesome. Yeah, I think cool. it's a good card. And the reason you don't see it in two mail is because it can be a little bit restrictive. And then, like, ha- like having the upkeep cost can be annoying because I believe it's... Uh, it's two and a B. Mana. Yeah, which, you know, when you're comparing to your other removal spells, a lot of them are all two mana. But the mm-hmm. fact it can kill your own Hulk, like, that that's why it's in the list. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's so sick. And, and, like, obviously, too, it's just, like, we might see more of it generically if there's... Uh, 
more Holebreaker horrors floating around because it's like, okay, you can bounce it. Uh, I'll cast it again. <laughs> so, you know, it, it is a good answer to some specific things. But like you said, being able to kill your own hole, genius. Once again, only five artifacts. Only the busted ones, Soul Ring, Mox Diamond, Mana Crypt, Chrome Mox, and Aether Vial. You know, I don't know how Aether Vial makes that lineup necessarily, but your Collector Roof deck makes a lot of sense in my opinion. Uh, and the enchantments, pretty normal. You know, the Remora, a Necromancy, Necromancy 6, you do it instant speed, it sacrifices, you get it, Hulk stuff. And then uh, your Pattern of Rebirth, Rhystic Study, and Survival. One of the best survival decks I've ever seen, to be honest. I, you see, you know, I don't really know where I fall in survival necessarily. It's one of the cards I think I struggle with the most to accurately analyze. I think some decks are survival decks that shouldn't be, and some decks, like, aren't survival decks that should be. But this is a deck where survival just makes absolute sense, and it's, it's one of the best survival decks I've seen. So, awesome. Yeah, especially with Volrath Shapeshifter and Body Snatcher. It's just insane. <laughs> Absolutely. And 27 lands, uh, I, I think you can justify 27 when you have this many mana creatures, but you do have a few dead lands like, uh, Phyrexian Tower or whatever that don't really cast your spells super well, even if they are very good in your deck. So I wouldn't mind seeing the extra land here or there. I wouldn't mind seeing a, a spirit guide, but I'm sure Ashani has his reasons. And, uh, overall, just really impressive stuff. And watching, like I said, watching him pilot this deck is a treat. Yeah, I, I love that he brought Hulk back. It's been a long time since I've seen Hulkless, and most of the Hulkless that you see have been, um, Sands Blue, like Tana Timna, Hulk shenanigans. And I, I honestly didn't believe him. I was like, oh, I think he should just play Hermitrude. He's like, no, nah, dies to balance and stuff. And then he tried out both decks a couple weeks before the tournament and a lot of testing. Mm-hmm. And the Hulkless was just getting me game after game. Yeah, just- yeah, no, same same experience. I, you know, honestly, I, I'm kind of surprised given, you know, how genius some of this deck building decisions are and having watched him pilot this deck that he didn't take the whole thing down. Uh, it's just incredible player and an incredibly smart deck. And honestly, this is one of those that you, know, you talk about, okay, people getting into CDH. If you're just getting into CDH and you have no experience with it at all, do not play this deck. Just incredibly complicated to play at high difficulty. Unless you're really, unless you're trying to really sit down and learn a deck in and out, then this is like, you know, kind of a good option. But like, if you're just starting out and want to get a taste of CDH, this is not something I'd recommend. It's just so difficult. And I, I, like I said, from the other side, normally it's easier on the other side to figure out what you need to play around and stuff. And I couldn't even figure that out. So, you know, like I said, really, I can't say enough praises about uh, Ashani and his ability to pilot this. So, incredible stuff. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, shall we move on to the last deck, Krokashima? Krokashima, Krokashima. Now, this deck I do have some experience with. This is a lot more my speed. I love me some dirtily storm, uh, solitaire style turn decks. Like, it's just 100% the thing I want to be doing. And, you know, Krokashiva even takes it a little farther than I typically like. But, you know, there is that app out, the Krokulator, I've heard it called, where it just, like, you just punch in all the variables and it, it does your roles for you turn after turn. So you don't have to sit here and, like, do it over and over again. But the problem is it changes sometimes when you want to interact. It just takes forever. I'm not really sure I'm willing to put casual pods through it, but I certainly don't mind it because I'm pretty guilty of... Uh, of that particular problem yeah, myself. Yeah, with storm turns. I've waited so long for you to take turns. <laughs> it can take a little bit of time. I'm a very deliberate player. We use yeah. the word deliberate. In, in my, my favorite is when you're storming off for 10, 15 minutes, you fizzle along the way, and then it's my turn. I'm just like, Oracle Consult? All right, and that's game. You're all dead. <laughs> and like, look, I tried, okay? I tried. <laughs> I, keep, I keep it easy for the, for the people. Uh, sure, sure. All right, uh, let's dive in here. I think we'll see less uh, atypical things here. Like, you know, like I said, we called out Archmage Emeritus is in the Kurokushima list. Uh, Brawl, I think, is an interesting choice. I don't know if I've seen that one in every deck. I love to see Bergy in the 99. Big, huge fan of that card, obviously. 
Uh, we do have dual caster mage plus like the heat shimmer twin flame stuff going on. We have uh, harmonic prodigy as a way to double up uh, some quirk triggers. We have uh, imperial recruiter tutor all the stuff. You don't have access to the tutors you're in blue and black. Freshly metamorph is a pretty cool one, especially alongside like the phantasmologist and stuff. You can just make even more Sakashimas, which are copies of Karks, and just have more Karks. Uh, Storm Kiln Artisan, obviously busted. Uh, Spellseeker, Tavern Scoundrel, super busted. No Ifrit. What is your thoughts on the Tavern Scoundrel, like synergizing obviously with Kark and stuff, but like no Ifrit in order to just like maximize that? What are your What are your thoughts there? It just doesn't matter. The infinite mana just doesn't really matter in this kind of deck. I don't think the the infinite mana matters. I think you already have enough, and you have like better effects that are just like good outside of like trying to go infinite. But I've never played this deck. Like honestly, it has too much bookkeeping for me to be interested in. Like, I, have, <laughs> I I respect the deck a lot. I think it's very powerful, but like, I don't want to be keeping track of this much storm. I need to keep track of my treasures. I need to keep track of the flips. That's just it's too much work for me. I when I'm playing Magic, I like to, to be able to like think things through like i love anala like all the games are a puzzle but the mm -hmm. amount of bookkeeping that this deck does like just very dissuades me from it but not to say the deck is bad like the deck's amazing. oh no the deck's very powerful obviously yeah. i mean what's kind of in top but, four and i've played against it plenty of times it's kind of one of those uh decks that you don't really know how close it is to winning very often like they play quark okay either. yeah not great then they play sakashima you're like okay now i feel close to dead but sometimes it's just not true sometimes you're just like hilariously far from dead and you shouldn't be like freak out panic killing Kark and sakashima but like sometimes also they're just like okay uh here's whatever here's a storm kill artisan and you can't win like i have a free counter spell you're gonna die like you're just dead so it's like very hard to tell at what point i should start being worried because like i usually it's like okay i really want to kill the Kark in response to the sakashima on the stack that way you know obviously it works out my way but like you know, obviously, you have to spew interaction for that. I, I've found that trying to figure out how close we are to dead as a table when with a Kark Sakashima deck is difficult. And I think the deck gets a lot of power from the generic populace not understanding how close they are to dead to the Kark and Sakashima. Especially if you just kill Kark, like, whatever. The card costs two mana. You play it again for four mana. Who cares? Like, you're playing on doing that anyway with your Sakashima. So, like, you really have to pick your spots smart with Kark Sakashima, and I think that's really hard to do without having a lot of reps against the deck. And obviously with the deck, you know, you play with it, you'll get a better understanding, but, like, unless you've actually played against it and stopped it, like, you know, the the generic um, idiom, not idiom, what is it, the the paradigm for interacting with Kark Sakashima is counter the spell. If you're going to counter it, counter the spell before the flips. Don't try to get greedy and wait because you're just going to die on the spot. Uh, I think people are figuring that one out more. That's another spot where people will screw it up and you get a lot of points. So this deck has got a lot going on. It's a very different axis from even the other lists we've seen, which is sweet. You know, we have a really diverse top four here, all doing like fairly different things, but are all dedicated to that thing. I think this really, really showcases why CDH is so awesome and so fun. Like these high interaction decks, you know, all of these decks in top four, you know, have a good density of interaction. I think that says a lot in these people that are like, oh, uh, yeah, I just, it's all solitaire. People, games in on turn two, all the, no, they don't. No, they don't. Everybody has a force of their deck that is playing a tier one deck. And you really see that in this top four where they're completely different decks and they still have that density of powerful interaction to make good games of CDH. I mean, honestly, I would kill to be in this pod. This pod looks awesome. But yeah, and they had a really good finals game. Like, I believe it. Went it. On for it was a pretty good, like, grindy game. Lots of interaction. Uh, unfortunately, the Jeskaya Shy player, uh, Veyron, he messed up and died to his own pack trigger. Oh, no! He had the pack trigger in his upkeep, and in his upkeep, he did, like, an Enlightened Tutor or, like, an Intuition. And then after casting that spell, when the pack trigger went on the stack, he didn't have the mana. 
Oh, Long day. No. These guys are playing for over like twelve hours, so you know. Yeah, that's gonna like happen that sometimes. Happen. Yeah, it's a shame it happened in finals, but. You know, I mean, you made like, it that oh, far. Like, Still an incredible result. Yeah. You know, it's hard to put too much stock. And that's why we're talking about the whole top four as more or less equals. Like, you know, obviously winning the pod matters, but I mean, just making it this far really, really, I think shows the players are are fairly close in both skill, endurance, and you know, tech building. Yeah, it was a really fun round to watch. Um, of course, I was on TO staff, so I had to be there the round the whole time. But it was really cool to watch this play out, especially knowing so many of the players in top four. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, on the note of Kirk Chakashima. It's a hard deck to interact with, and as you said, you definitely need to respond before the triggers go on the stack. Just counter the spell before they can get it back to their hand and keep looping things. Right. Other than that, you can't let them have two Karks. One Kark, manageable. They still might kill you out of nowhere, but once they get two Karks, like... Yeah, it's just... They're... You're dead. <laughs> yeah, like, you'll... you'll t- Hal told me this before, and, like, I doubted him. He's like, no, like, if I have a cantrip and a ritual in hand, you're dead if I have two Karks out. And I'm like, no, you're not. He's like, watch me goldfish. And I was like, oh, yeah, that ponder just killed us. Yeah, I think you really have to interact uh, somewhere with the Sakashima on the stack, usually, either countering Sakashima, bouncing Krark, whatever. Like, you really have to disrupt there. I think that's kind of the spot I've been trying to pick. But, you know, even if they just have Krark out, like, they can accumulate a lot of advantage with cantrips to the point where they have a free interaction spell, and then it just becomes really hard to interact with the Sakashima on the stack. So, like I said, really, really tough to, to play against. Um... Yeah, so moving right along. In the Festivities is a card I want to highlight. It's a card they got out of, I think it's Midnight Hunt. No, it's Crimson Vow. Crimson Vow. And it's actually like a win condition for the deck. You just make like a, whatever, a ton of Krarks and the, it's going to get bounced to your hand all the time. And so like it's a way to go infinite with like your Storm Kill Artisan. I, I don't know. There's a way you kill the whole table with this card. I like, can do it with Lightning Bolt too, but it just goes to show they don't have to play a Thassa's Oracle. There, I don't even think there is one in the deck. Because that's just how they kill you. Is they kill you with these cards that also just function. And that, there's a lot of power in that too. You don't have to really dedicate anything to your win condition. You just have to start casting your spells with your Kark and Sakashima out. And everything just kind of supports that game plan. So fairly linear in its strategy. But uh, very compact and makes room for more interaction. And yeah, that's it's just an impressive way to build a deck. You do see a Grape Shot as well. Same idea. You just want redundancy in case you know things get exiled, Praetor's Grasp, what have you. Uh, Mind's Desire is a card I love a lot. Uh, you know, once again, it's, there's I played Yidris almost specifically for this card. Like it's a card I don't get to play in Legacy, and I come to CDH to play with things I don't really get to play with constructed formats, which is my attachment to like Wheels and Mind's Desire and some of the busted mana and Necropotent stuff like that. And uh, yeah, had the Mind's Desire here is so sick. You get extra copies, and maybe you bounce it and just do it again. Huh, uh. <laughs> God, it makes you just want to play this deck. Uh, as much as you don't want to track it, it just sounds like a dream to me. This this deck looks awesome. I love this so, so much, and I'm glad this is a thing we can do in CDH. Mm-hmm. Uh, Definitely a cool list. Yeah, Overmaster, you know, a lot of cantrips. We do see the Shatter Skull Smashing functioning as the 28th pseudo land. I think that's smart. I think a lot of lists should be doing that. Uh, Strike It Rich, good call. Like, I don't know if there's any spice that deviates from normal Kark Sakashima in here. I'm just kind of calling out things that are uh, intriguing is- to me. Hal's list is four cards off the database list. So right. That's what that's what I figured. Really... Just looking at this list, it looks pretty stock uh, for this deck list. Ruby Medallion, is that pretty normal? Is that something people normally yeah, do? Yeah, that's not okay. one of the four cards. Like, one of the four cards, it's a land. Uh, sure. Hal's on Finale of Promise, Pure Dame, and Priretic Ritual, which the database isn't. Those all sound like good changes. Very much, yeah, I agree with all those changes, but it's also, like, the four cards that the database wants playing, the I can. Mm-hmm. They're all... It's similar. It's four cards. That is not going to make or break a list. But how he wanted me to point out, or just point out in general, because he talks about it all the time, he thinks Finale Promise is the best card in this deck. 
The and best card? That's gotta be a reach. I know. I love Finale, I promise. I played it in Is It Phoenix. The card's busted there. I play it in Bergy, where most people don't. It's busted there, too. So, I, I'm not going to argue that the deck, the card doesn't belong in the deck. I think it absolutely does. Best card in the deck? He talks about it a lot, and I, um, I haven't heard his full reasoning, because I just haven't asked him in depth, but I can see it. Like, if you get this out with, like, some card triggers and things, and you get it back to your hand, and now you can do, like, two cantrips, or, like, two, uh, like a ritual and a cantrip, and then you get it back, and, like, the ritual helps pay for it. Obviously, it exiles things along the way. But mm-hmm. I can definitely see how this is a really powerful extender just giving you free spells, especially with the card triggers, because if it copies, that's insane. Now you're getting four spells for three mana, potentially. Well, you also can just get the spells back to your hand, right? Like, Krark will bounce the spells, they won't exile it. because yeah, it's on, because it casts them. So you still yeah, get card it says, yeah, it says if the card casts away, it would be put into your graveyard, instead of, like, a flashback where it says if it would go anywhere else, it's exiled instead. This one says if it would be put into your graveyard this turn, exile it instead. So, yeah, Finale Promise basically could just be, you know, not only a draw to, but cast those spells to. I, I can kind of see it being, like, yeah, you know, obviously extremely powerful, and it casts them so you get all the card triggers. Like, trust me, I've cast in, uh, Finale Promise underneath an active Pyromancer Ascension, and that is an experience. And you, you don't like stack management, buddy. That is stack management. <laughs> it is miserable. Uh, actually, I, I like it that's a lot. Where I, but. That's where I pull the Ashani, and I like I'm I'm gonna leave. I'm gonna go do something else. Yeah, no. See, this is just a this is just a dream for me. I love this list a lot. Uh, yeah, not not a lot. I want to call out here. We do see Otawara here. Um, makes a lot of sense. I mean, you play a pile of islands. There's no way that whatever the third island is better than uh, a copy of Otawara. That makes a lot of sense. Actually. Especially in two colors, like there's right. no opportunity cost. Really. And that's what we talked about too in the the cast is the lower you go on colors, the more these lands are just very very free. And yeah, last things I think I want to call out is is there no red elemental blast, but there's a pyroblast? It drives me crazy when people do this. Um, yeah, I, I don't know the exact reason. Can't really speak. To I mean, that. obviously, normally you cast it like there's the difference is you can cast pyroblast for no value, like you can target something that isn't blue. Whereas Red Elemental Blast can't be, like, mis- uh, not misdirected. What's the Swatted. Problem? Yeah, it can't be swatted. Swat. Thank you. Um, but, and so Pyroblast, like, for token makers, like, in Pyromancer and stuff, like, in Legacy, that's Pyroblast is considered better because, like, you have those kinds of effects where you can just throw it in the graveyard for Delve or whatever. But here, like, I don't really yeah. know why. I think, it's you can, I think it's because you can change the mode. So it's, like, if you want, you can copy it, c- counter a spell, and then destroy something if you win the flip. I think that might be it. I think you can do that for either one, right? Oh, maybe not. You I don't know. Do I don't know the rule. It's like it's a weird like template thing. I could be very wrong, but I think that's part of it. Is audience, weird. if you know why Pyroblast and how Pyroblast works and why Pyroblast is in Kark Sakashima and Red Blast isn't, please reach out to us. You can reach out to us on Twitter or Discord or whatever. Please let us know because I don't know. Yeah. Feel free to tell us that we're idiots for it, because like we've been playing this game so long and don't know. But I just always play yeah. both. I just want them both. Blasts yeah. are so good. They're so underplayed. I, mean, I, pl- I play them both in my list with blue. Like I get it. <laughs> like yeah. Like I don't know. Like, it's, they're just so good. And and then of course, Mindbreak Trap is a card that I think there was some discussion around that you and I were talking about recently, where it's like this card. I've, I it, it's just gonna beat me every single time. Like Mindbreak Trap is like a card custom built for me to never ever beat it. Like in a million years. And Kai has worked me over and over again with that card. And, you know, we see it we see it here, and I think we're seeing it pick up more because it is a zero-man piece of interaction. Yeah, I'm just never being that card in a million years. I think more lists should be playing this. Card's messed up. Foils are already infinite dollars, so you missed the boat on that one a little bit. But it's catching on, and the card's messed up. Put it in your decks. Yeah. All right. Anything else you want to talk about there? Oh, let's, uh, let's keep it moving. 
yeah, we are. Yeah, right at the hour and a half mark. Uh, I think maybe a little bit under, but yeah, let's uh start moving the podcast towards winding it down. But there is uh kind of one thing I want to talk about before, and I, I guess you can actually bring it up. But I heard that uh our friends, you know, Z Rob and Jamaican Dude, which is Ashani and what's Zerob's Zane. Zane. Jeez, I'm so bad. I'm so sorry, Zane. Please don't come after me. I'm so bad with names. Um, yeah, they both kind of they like changed their their usernames for this tournament. Is that what happened? Yeah. So Zane went a little bit further than Ashani, but Ashani changed his name on Discord to something else. I think he changed it to I'm Bad at Magic, and then Zane was like Zacharias Robert Robertson, and also changed his Discord photo. And they both did this because they felt like Zane, especially since he's pretty known in the playing with power tournament from their leagues and past tournaments, they get targeted a lot because people know who they are or know of them. And they wanted to just try to hide their their identity a little bit just so like people would go into pods a little bit more blindly with lack of a better term. So like obviously they see someone on Team or Malcolm. Seeing a rando on Team or Malcolm is very different than seeing Z-Rob on Team or Malcolm because, you know, he's one of the better pilots of that list. Like he upholds the list of the database. He plays it all the time. Same thing with Hulk. Like, I, I see someone playing Hulk at a tournament. I'm like, wow, you're living in like 2016. I see a Shawnee and Hulk. I'm like, oh, we're dead. Like it's it's turn zero and we're dead. He hasn't even done win. anything yet. So I definitely see why they did it. And both of them said that it, it worked. I mean, they made it to top four. And Zane's mentioned how when he played in the last playing with Power League, he's like, I just get targeted left and right. He's like, I don't even have anything. And people are blowing up my rocks. They're blowing up my Malcolm every two seconds. He's like, I literally mold to like four one game and they killed my Malcolm turn one. And like as much as I love killing Malcolms, if someone mold to four, I'm probably not killing their Malcolm when there's a Timna on the board or something else. And it's something that works to their advantage. Like I mean, like I said, they made it to finals. Uh, they weren't targeted as much as they're used to in other pods. So I think it just speaks volumes to some issues with CEDH, where your personality does play a large factor into it. When people either overly respect you, sometimes it might be that they listen to your politics more than other people and. Well, Drake and I, we're not big fans of table talk for part of this reason. And <laughs> yeah, other, we could do a whole that, show a, on that. In fact, we probably will at some point. Yeah, that'll be a topic for a future video. But in general, we, we avoid table talk, but it's like it has people who are more well-known, people just listen to you more. And that just right. kind of happens, especially when it's like a newer player to the format or it's like someone might, like I said, see you on like your signature deck and just start targeting you. And this has even happened to me when I used to play a lot in the Founders Discord. When I was on Inala, I had someone mental missed up my brainstorm. And I'm not saying Anal is not a scary deck, but mental misstepping my brainstorm, like, come on. like <laughs> A little aggressive, a little aggressive doing? to say the least. Exactly, and it, it, it just shows that people do play differently when they know who you are, especially seeing you on certain decks. So I just thought it was interesting that on this webcam tournament they changed their identities and they had really good success and they didn't have to deal with a lot of issues that they've dealt with in other online TDH uh, events or just playing random pods like on Nexus, Founders, wherever, you might, wherever they might play games. So I just thought that was something interesting to call out that it happened, and I think it was a very good call for them, and it worked out obviously. And you you said that they actively felt like they were targeted less than they you know are normally or whatever because of this. Um, I didn't talk to Jamaican dude as much about it, but Zane was like, "Yeah, no, like if I didn't change my name, I think I wouldn't have made it to top 16. That's so insane. That's so insane. Yeah, no, I I mean it makes sense, I guess, to some degree. Like you know, if you're feared you're going to get targeted a lot more. And like you said, we've had, you know, a ton of conversations kind of in this space where, uh, you know, I kind of feel that like if you have some kind of social currency by being a content creator or whatever, like people are more likely to side with you or believe you or want to be liked or whatever, you know, I kind of feel like there's equity in being popular when it comes to, to tournaments. And I think that could be potentially problematic. And we, 
like I said, we'll maybe do a whole show on this eventually, but this actually kind of contradicts that opinion I have where it's like, okay, like, you know, Ashani's known for being really good. Zane's known for being really good. And, and they are both very good. I can speak to that firsthand. And they're like, okay, well, we actually don't want to be known at all. I don't want people to know who we are because we don't want to be seen as a threat. I think that's, that's really interesting and does kind of push back against this. Okay. The well-known players are trying to hide it, not flex it. And I think that that's an interesting thing to look at. And certainly, like I said, it diverges from what my initial impression of how tournaments were going to go based on popularity and what that looks like. I think that's, that's really, really interesting. Um, yeah, so no, that's, that's kind of wild. Uh, yeah, I'd be, you can't really do this with real life tournaments. So there's also kind of an angle to this entire thing about having more leverage in online tournaments to kind of hide your identity and do some information hiding and stuff like that compared to, you know, in person where if people know what you look like now, We've been in pandemic for, you know, years at this point. So, you know, I, I don't know what Jamaican dude's face looks like. I have an intimate description of his hands, but that's, that's what I got. You know, I, I don't know what it, I don't know what he looks like in person. So, you know, basically until he talks, I would have no idea, you know, necessarily that, that was a Shawnee and that I should be really scared and I'm probably just going to die. But, um, yeah, there, there's just a lot of, I think, interesting aspects to that that are, interesting to unpack and as cedh tournaments become more popular become more prevalent as you continue to hold up the entire cdh community by toing every single tournament out there we uh it's going to be interesting to see how that develops if strategy around that changes if more people start doing that you know maybe you know at some point it needs to be tournament sponsored you just be like player a player b player c player zeta one you know whatever like just to hide identities that way everyone's on an even playing field or maybe not there's there's a ton that can go forward with this. So I really like being able to call this out and say, Hey, like this is what happens. Apparently it had a, a, a positive impact. And, you know, I, I don't know exactly what that means going forward, but it's certainly, certainly really interesting to talk about. Yeah, for sure. Speaking of kind of segueing into more tournaments, you're TOing, uh, we have a Marchesa event coming up, right? And I, I want to highlight this here because I do think the results of this tournament and, you know, obviously the actions that, you know, Zane and Ashani took regarding hiding their identity um, are going to have an impact on this next tournament you're TOing, this Marchesa event in Seattle. And of course, you can you can chill for it or whatever. It's going to be a sweet event. Of course, I can't attend. Seattle's across the universe from Alabama and I'll have been on the road for two weeks already. I'm going to be at SCGND. So I guess if you're listening to the podcast, you're a fan, whatever, you can uh, link up, play some pods there. But uh I will not be able to make it to our chase event, but you want to go ahead and talk about what that is and how that's different from the playing with power tournament before we kind of talk about um, kind of what the impact of this playing with power tournament is going to be on that tournament. I mean, honestly, whenever there's a big online tournament for mag or for CEDH people, and this happens with any competitive card game, people are going to look at the results of that tournament, look at the top 16 and kind of use that as like a basis for what the meta is going to be like. Mm -hmm. Y'all couldn't see that, but I just did really big air quotes because I, it's so hard to predict. Like, for instance, Gustav thought he was going to go into a bunch of stacks in the Playing With Power Tournament, and he ended up not playing against as much stacks as he thought. Right. And another variable with the Marchesa event is that we are allowing playtest cards. So there's a list of, like, duels and some other, like, more expensive cards in the format that you're able to proxy and still play with the deck. Mm -hmm. So 
maybe people are going to experiment, be like, I don't own any, I don't own a volcanic island. Maybe let me try Grixis for the first time, or maybe let me try Jeskai, because now I have a Tundra and a Volk I have access to. Right. So I think it's going to be really hard to try to metagame it. At the end of the day, I think you need to just play a deck you're comfortable with and a deck that has answers to multiple threats. Like, don't pick anything, don't pick a deck expecting to win turn two every game, and don't pick a deck that is very linear with its interaction, like whether it be like solely stacks. Make sure that you have a wide diverse of answers being counter spells, spot removal, board wipes, whatever the case may be. Just make sure you have a variety. Don't go all in on one strategy because, like, as you can see from the decks that made it into top four, these are all decks that can pivot. They have multiple ways of getting there. I think Ashani's Hulk list and a Gustav's list are perfect examples of this where, yes, they have a game plan, but they have like 10 avenues of getting there. And mm-hmm. I think that diversity and that variety is what you need to be focusing on if you're trying to metagame any type of event. You need to be flexible. And that's what's important at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, it's just so hard to metagame CDH. I mean, we looked at this metagame breakdown, and like I said, the, there was 120 decks, and the highest repetition was nine. Next highest was like a bunch of fives. Like, that's such a spread. I mean, you don't see that kind of spread in even like competitive tournaments where there'll be thousands of players. Like, you know, you, you'll have like a hundred of one deck and like whatever, but like it won't really exceed like 20 decks. And here, I mean, I think we were up beyond like 40 or whatever. I mean, that's back of the napkin. I don't actually know for sure. You know, you can obviously check the data wherever, but, um, you are looking at such a spread that I think trying to metagame is slightly foolish. Like, I think you should metagame based on trends. Like, oh, more people are putting Mindbreak Trap in their deck, or more people are putting Aether Vial in their deck. What is the implications of that for my deck list? Is there any way I should be responding with how I'm building my deck based on deck building trends as an aggregate? Not as, oh, this specific deck won, everyone's going to play that. That's just not even close to true. Um... There's a there's a quote that speaks to this really well from Andrew Ellenbogen, the the winner of the last official Pro Tour, and uh, it was saying competitive magic is the art of drawing correct conclusions from insufficient data, and it speaks really well to the amount of magic that needs to be played in order to draw any real conclusions. Karsten has an article on it out there. We're never going to know anything for de- for definitives, especially not from tournaments, and. There's just nowhere close to enough tournaments in 60 card formats. And there is way more 60 card format tournaments even now than there are CDH tournaments. So honestly, all this, you know, we spent this entire show talking about tournament results for me to kind of go on the spiel where I say tournament results don't matter. And that's actually not strictly true. Tournament results matter insofar as you can read what's going on. If you have your finger on the pulse for shifts in how people are building their decks and you have fingers on the pulse for, you know, okay, this kind of thing, like Hermit Druid came out of nowhere. Why? Well, maybe people are trying to go too big brain with interaction and just having like a good, you know, uh, strategy that can go really fast, but also, you know, is fairly resilient and has a fair bit of interaction is where you should be. You should start with having a really fast game plan and fill your deck out beyond that. Like there's a ton of conclusions you can draw and they're all range from specific to generic and i think the the art of accurately assessing tournament data is in that space where you don't say oh stacks is completely unplayable because there was none in the top four and there was only one in the top 16 or whatever like that's just not strictly true like you know we talked about winota there was a winota in the top 16 and you know maybe the implication here is that stacks should trend towards that and because that was the most successful. And I do think that is the case. I don't think stacks is unplayable. I think they should trend more towards Winota decks. And like you said, maybe Heliod, where you have a good core game plan. There is conclusions to be drawn 
And I think we've kind of done a reasonable job highlighting some of them for sure. But there's a lot more you can pull from the top 16 data and all that that isn't strictly this is the metagame because that's just not going to be the case. The top 16 could be honestly 16 completely different decks from this tournament. That wouldn't even surprise me that much. Maybe no blue farm or whatever, you know, whatever these decks that are kind of cracked, I'd be a little surprised, but uh, frankly, I wouldn't even be that surprised. But what you do need to pay attention to is not the specific decks, but the deck building trends and where um, the metagame is going as far as deck building for any kind of generic deck you know more interaction less interaction what kind of things are hard to interact with you know are is graveyard hate down is creature removal down like these are the kinds of questions you should be asking yourself and this is the kind of generic data you should be pulling from tournament results and yeah i really want to highlight that because that is a skill that players struggle with even in 60 card formats where there's a lot more data people will take top 16s and be like oh this list one i'm just gonna play that and it's like well it might actually be a horrible choice there was a tournament I won once with a deck that was a, a completely a metagame call. I don't do it very often in tournaments, but it was a metagame call. I ended up winning the whole tournament. Big moment for me. And in the winner's interview, I told everybody, don't play this deck. Like next week, this deck's going to be unplayable. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that you need to be able to assess. Yeah, like and... good luck picking up a Shawnee's Hulk list. Like good luck. Right. I mean, that deck's you probably still going to be good. With... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you win Marchesa with a Shawnee's Hulk list and your name isn't a Shawnee, I'll pay you like $200. I'm right, yeah, it's just not going to happen. Zero percent. <laughs> I mean, watch this. We'll be fools. Everybody was just going to show up at the deck just so that somebody can collect $200, whatever. But the point I'll is, like... I'll take that out. I'll take that out. <laughs> it would be a really cool phenomenon, that's for sure. But no, yeah, the point is, like, there's a lot of information that can be gained, and you're not going to be able to say anything definitively, but that doesn't mean it's worthless, and it certainly doesn't mean it is the beacon of truth when it comes to what's going on in a metagame. All right. Well, we have talked now. Let me look. We've talked now for, you know, going on, you know, an hour 45. So a little longer than last week's podcast. A little bit of rambling on my end and just kind of floundering around. But I'm doing my best. I'm sick and apologies for that. But anything else you want to say about the Playing With Power tournament and your experience uh, being a TO for that before we close it down here? Um, all I have to say is uh, thanks to all the Playing With Power guys for giving me the opportunity to get some more TO experience in. And uh, Awesome group. Awesome so- group. Yeah, also shout out to uh, Nick, aka Joking101, for being the mastermind behind Monarch. And he's the real, he's the reason that this event's happening in March. Um, while a lot of us are helping out, he's the one who's really got the group together, got everyone organized, and he deals with so much work for the organization. Like, he just does a lot. He's the mastermind behind it all. And I'm just happy to be able to help with such a great group. Yeah, absolutely. I, I like the playing with Power Guys a lot. I was able to, was lucky enough to play on their stream once or twice so you know check them out they're on twitch you know playing with power like uh, twitter you can join their discord if you want to play in the next tournament that's where i found out about it i highly recommend checking out their discord great community there pods fire all the time playing with power is like one of the first groups i even heard about that was like a dedicated cdh group just awesome people i think they have a podcast too like you want any kind of information they're awesome check them out you know playing their tournaments they're awesome check them out um yeah, and it's it's really cool that you were able to TO and get such an awesome tournament uh in the books. Really, really cool. I was so stoked to hear so many people that, you know, I know are talented and I'm big fans of kind of get their their time in the light uh, crushing that tournament. It's really, really awesome. All right. Well, 
that will be it for episode two of the miscast thank you all for listening this far if you want to follow us on twitter you can find us at miscast the miscast mtg uh, you can find us on spotify apple podcast google podcast basically anywhere reasonable how about this if you can't find us reach out and we'll i'll see if we can get the podcast on that platform but you should be able to find us on every reasonable platform and uh, you can find me personally at viral underscore drake on twitter and i'm of course in the cdh discords and stuff like that so if you're in one you can probably at me i'm probably in it if not well it's not that cool of a discord anyway and where can they find you, Mikey Hollihan? Uh, if you want to reach me, message uh, Hal um, at Hellenium. <laughs> um, he is my secretary, and he'll get you in touch with me if you're worth my time. <laughs> he, has, he has people. He's too important. He's got people. <laughs> it, it filters through. Yeah, you can reach out to me, too. If you need to get something to Mikey, of course, reach out to me. <laughs> all right. Well, I appreciate your time, and we will see you all next week.